What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 55. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going? Oh, it's going good, dude. We have a new set releasing this week, which I didn't really realize until several hours ago, so I'm pretty hyped. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's okay. We're not totally doing a format breakdown right now that, that you probably should have. Never mind. Let, okay, let's get no, into it. I, I've been doing my research. I've been watching the cards that come out. I've been thinking a lot, mulling things over, but I have to admit, I'm still having a lot of fun in Strixhaven, so I guess it kind of stuck up on me. You've been tearing up the um, trophy channel. Oh, man. I, I was so close to, to a trophy on, on one of them, on a really sweet one today. I had Storm 9, and I grape shot my opponent for 9. Oh, man, it was so good. I uh, I ended up losing... Uh, my, my one match that I lost in traditional was uh, against a kind of like medium black green deck and I had one of the unluckiest strings of land I've ever seen in my life. I have a tracker. I was like 23% to draw the next land and I did again and I just, I scooped. It, it was rough, but uh, you know, sometimes you build a really cool storm deck and <laughs> you lose to Mulder and Karaks. Unless you're LSV. He, he only builds really cool storm decks and wins everything with them. Not all of us can be LSV, so... True. All right, this week we're talking about Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. This is the format breakdown for the newest set, and so we'll get right into that. We'll talk all things new archetypes, new mechanics, new cards to look out for, our early picks for top commons, and uh, what we're both expecting and excited for with this set. But before we do, of course, our usual housekeeping, we got to plug the Discord. Check out the Discord for the best place to go to interact with us and the rest of our community. All the aficionados over there are really just doing an awesome job keeping up the hype for this new set, and we're excited to see when the trophy decks start to pour into our trophy decks channel over there. So check that out. Uh, it's never too late to get involved in the Discord. Uh, we always appreciate seeing new folks in there. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show, the best place to do so is through the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. It's our pretty much only sponsor of the show, and we are offering a handful of different tiers over there with different uh, new and exciting features coming. We, we've talked a little bit about some of them. One of the new features that is coming, hopefully this month, we're still working out the sort of specifics on it, but uh, we are planning to be sending out to every patron, new and old, uh, at the time of this recording at least, we'll be planning to send out a signed card, signed copy of our uh, Draft Chaff Hero that is up and up and coming or whatever the current draft chaff hero is. So all, all patron tiers will be getting that new uh, perk in a little bit. We're not sure exactly when we're rolling that out, but it should be uh, sometime soon. Otherwise you can get access to stickers, the full show notes, custom deck building opportunities with us, access to uncut and unedited versions of the show. And of course, thanks to all our lovely patrons. We are also uploading our videos, uh, our, our podcast episodes on YouTube as well. All right. Um, before we move on to our next segment, I just wanted to mention as well, we still have the survey available. That's just a way for you as a listener to get your thoughts and input into the show and uh, provide us with some feedback as to how we can go progress and improve the show going into our second year here of Draft Chaff. As well, uh, we also have a, a merchandise store, which we launched uh, in, in our anniversary week, especially you can check that out at shop.draftchaff.com. If you're interested in picking up some draft chaff merch, uh, that would be cool. All right. So we're going to skip the crack and draft type thing. It's a brand new set. So 
it's going to be a little awkward to start reading over a bunch of cards that people really haven't had any experience with yet. So we're just going to move into the Teferi Tibble, then we'll jump into the main topic, and then we'll be back next week with an AFR crack-a-draft type thing. All right, Ben. Teferi Tibble, the section of the show where we share one high and one low from the past week. What's your high? What's your low? Ooh. All right. So let's see. I, for my Teferi... My family is in it from out of town. I've got some cousins and aunts and uncles uh, in from Ohio. So that's interesting. It's kind of been this whole week of family events every night. Uh, I managed to sneak out of one of them tonight to to actually record. But every single night has been like barbecue or like going out to eat. Or uh, we had Fourth of July fireworks uh, viewing uh, a few nights ago here in, in the U.S. And uh, I also got to go to the beach today for the first time in I have honestly no idea how many months, which is good because I've surfed for almost my entire life since I was like seven or eight. Uh, so I got to do a little bit of that. And my cousins were out of the surf camp and I got to help them out catching some waves. So that was a pretty cool time. Uh, I, I have to get a nice tan going <laughs> for the for the, the summer. Uh, that way it'll balance out when I spend my entire winter indoors playing Magic the Gathering on my phone. Uh, Naturally. As for uh, Tibble... <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to put together Stoneblade for Modern because it sounds like Modern events are happening again at some of the local game stores, which is sweet. I've been picking up stuff for uh, Stoneblade, and then lo and behold, Stoneforge kind of shot up a little bit, especially the copies that I wanted, which just so happened to be the borderless, uh, beautiful, full art, gorgeous promo, and it has like a, a sword of fire and ice like being crafted out of steel. It looks so cool. They went from like 60 up to like 95. <laughs> so I really missed the boat on that one. I, I came so close to getting them two weeks ago, dude. It, it's, it hurts. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll buy them. Maybe I'll just buy the, you know, normal ones, <laughs> but uh, I'll see, I guess. Uh, and then my car, which I adjust my last week, my tibble was that I had my car in the shop. Uh, this week, once again, my car it's doing some funky things uh, i had multiple check lights come on today we'll, we'll leave it at that so it's it, it, <laughs> nice it, it's always something that's true well for me uh i mentioned last week we've been we're starting my wife and i are starting to apartment hunt uh we got a slew of apartments ready to be viewed this week uh at the time of recording we've seen two uh we have another four i think slated by the end of the week that we're supposed to be looking at uh, we saw one today, which was pretty nice and actually the the top on the list so far. And we're hoping um, that that it works out and that that we'll be able to get that one if we don't like any of the others more. It's surprising because it's one of the it ended up being one of the bigger ones on the list, like square footage wise, which we weren't expecting. It's got a great layout and it um, is being completely renoed. They're like replacing the kitchen counters they're replacing the floors they're replacing the backsplash in the kitchen they're replacing the entire bathroom the toilet the vanity the the tub like everything sweet uh the downsides are that it doesn't have in-unit washer dryer which means we have to go downstairs to do our laundry and we have to pay for it by like to use the machines in the building which kind of feels like back in the college days which kind of sucks and it yeah that's how it is it happens but it also doesn't have central ac which We've grown quite accustomed to, so that's a little bit of a downer, but it's like way cheaper. The unit is way cheaper than a lot of the other ones we're looking at, so it's probably worth it still. Yeah, get some nice box fans. Yeah, we'll just get window units probably, but um, you know, it's so much cheaper and it is being completely renovated, so it's basically like a luxury apartment for the cost of not a luxury apartment. So there's not a whole lot to complain about there. 
Um, but we have a couple more seats for me. <laughs> uh, it does have a second room. We're hoping we're hoping because one of the rooms, since I work from home and also do a lot of content and stuff, uh, one of the rooms will be my office. But we're hoping to put a futon in that room, so we will have some spare guest space. So you know that's that's a thing, I guess. Uh, my tibble for this week is also apartment related. We I mentioned we saw one apartment today. We were supposed to see two. We had an appointment at 12 p.m. and an appointment at 1 p.m. And we got to the the unit at 12 p.m. and nobody was there. So I texted the realtor and I was like, hey, we're here. A few minutes went by and I heard nothing back. So I called the realtor. I said, hey, we're here. And they're like, oh, I got caught up with this previous appointment. I'm going to be a half hour. So meanwhile, not Hannah nor myself have had lunch yet. The plan was we were going to see this unit, go get lunch, then go see the second unit. Uh, So we were like, okay, um... Well, you know, we're here now, and we don't really have an extra half hour to wait around. Mm. The realtor said, okay, well, give me a minute. I'll call you right back. About five minutes go by. I was just like, forget it. Let's just go. We start walking <laughs> away. The realtor calls back and says, someone will be there in 10 minutes. It's like, okay, we'll wait for 10 minutes. 10 minutes go by. Nobody's there. 15 minutes go by. Still nobody's uh, there. At that point, you've already lost the amount of time. Exactly. It was it got to 12:30 and i was like that's it forget it we're leaving let's go get lunch we've got this other unit to see and as we were driving to get lunch they called back and i didn't answer but the the realtor texted me and said oh i guess I, and i texted them when we left we can't wait any longer i wasn't just going to like walk away and not say anything yeah um i said we just we can't wait any longer and they texted back and said oh i guess we just missed you someone's waiting there for you now and i didn't answer cuz like, <laughs> just- well I, I we got to lunch and then i and then i answered and i said I guess so, uh, but we waited a half hour, and we have another place to be, so, like, sorry, I guess, like, you know, That's don't be late next time. DM on their part, I would yeah. say. All right, on to our listener question of the week. This week, our question is from Dorigan, who asks, what's your D&D character? Or make one up if you don't have one. Uh, so, you are going to answer, what's your D&D character? I'm going to answer, make one up. So, go ahead. Yeah, so I have a bunch. Uh, I've been playing D and D since my since like back in middle school, off and on. Um, I had a long running campaign going in high school, uh, or actually right as I got out of high school, it kind of started in high school. Ben and I started a chess club in high school, and then quickly turned it into D and D club, which turned into Magic Club, and then back to chess. It was like a weird, really weird <laughs> thing that happened. Yeah. Um, but that campaign that started in that class kind of kept going after college after high school for a little while um once i met my wife i stopped playing in that group um but it was a great campaign i played a rogue in that campaign named warren oh no rannick and everybody called me ricky Uh, that was one instance where i used my internet moniker as a character name um and uh at one point, one of the PCs in that group died, and Rannick ran off with a bunch of stuff that the party had because he got scared of dying. And I used that as, as an excuse to roll a new character because I was getting tired of playing that rogue. So then I rolled uh, a... You know, there's actually a bit of time where I, I don't remember what, what happened, but I ended up playing three characters in that campaign. One was Rannick, the rogue. One was a monk who was a Vow of Poverty monk, and we were playing 3.5 D&D. Um, 3.5 edition, which was fan- fantastic, but you could play a Vow of Poverty monk, which basically meant that you were not allowed any real worldly possessions outside of like your clothes and food. You you couldn't you couldn't gain anything. You could you could earn money, but all of it had to be earned with the 
preconceived understanding that it would be given away or donated at some point. You couldn't spend it for your own your own gain. Um, but it gave you incredible powers. Like I didn't need to eat or drink. I didn't need to sleep. I could. Oh. I I actually and I rolled a trip master monk basically, which let me just run around all over the battlefield and just trip everybody, and they couldn't get up and stuff. It was it was wild. It was a really fun character. That sounds um, fun. Airbender, I, kind of. Uh, and then I also played a cleric at one point, and that was fine. I don't actually remember what that character's name was, though. My, uh, my, my monk's name was Ren Carland, um, and one of my more favorite characters. Just recently, and then, and then I kind of stopped playing with them. Hadn't played D and D for a long time, and then in college I picked up DMing a little bit, so I didn't get to play my own characters. Um, I played NPCs, but I didn't get to like pour into one particular character. Uh, but we just recently took a break from a campaign I was running. And as such, somebody else in the group decided to, to pick up DMing for a little bit. We played like two sessions of that that campaign and it kind of fell apart. But um, I wrote a crazy backstory for my character and his name is Sephandrius, which is a nod to a character from Brandon Sanderson's uh, Stormlight Archive. There's a character nice. there who we find out in one of the later books is named Sephandrius. I won't spoil who that character is. But um, essentially, my Sephandrius is a... An old man who's not an old man, he's actually a dragon, who has been true polymorphed into a human um, and by, by some lich and is working to undo that. Um, and you can read all about Sephandrius' backstory on my blog because I wrote an entire backstory for him and posted it on my blog, Wayfarer's Journal. Uh, so if you're interested in reading the, the background story for Sephandrius there, you can do that at wayfarersjournal.com. Um... Yeah, that's it. I I don't have more. I don't have too much more character wise to to mention. But uh, I have a lot of other ideas. I really wanted to play a paladin at some point, but I wanted to play a paladin that didn't speak, and like mm. he took a vow of silence or something, which is really hard to do in D anD D, especially when you're playing online. Like I don't know how you actually role play a character without being able to speak if nobody at the table can speak sign or can can sign, right? Yeah. That'd so be tough. I don't really know how to role play that. So I've never. I haven't really bothered trying to introduce that to a table but that's a character i've had working around in my head for a while and i'm i would really love to try to give that a shot so how about you yeah yeah uh yeah i'd be like a wizard or something all right moving on wow <laughs> no um i i don't know a lot of the ones that you've said have been cool i've never actually been part of an active D campaign which is shocking to both myself and most people that know me given how up my alley it is and should be but i've i've played a lot of like little one-off type games or uh, what's the one that's I, I cannot remember what it's called I think you have it because I know I've played it with you before it's kind of like the futuristic you know what Gamma I'm talking World. about right yeah Gamma, Gamma World, World. Yeah. Gamma World's uh, a fantastic that, RPG that is very uh, yeah it's it's more sci-fi than fantasy and it's very randomized it's a very fun game yeah so I've done some things like that and then other like non D&D affiliated but D&D-esque spinoffs uh, like one of you just kind of do the thing and then that's it uh, my schedule is pretty packed <laughs> as, as a teacher. It's hard to find enough free time to do uh, anything, let alone have a, a reliable D&D campaign. Uh, and if I, if I did get to in a D&D, then how would I, you know, keep uh, grinding for Mythic every month for, for apparently no reason? <laughs> Why would I? <laughs> it's not like that has no point anymore. Why I, I have to keep doing that. Oh, God. Right. Anyway. Um, no, uh, in reality, I would probably end up being some sort of uh, mono white esque character, uh, probably like a paladin or a monk or uh, a knight of some kind. I've always found those pretty uh, fun archetypes in similar RPG esque games. 
I think it, I don't know if it was one of your characters or if it was one of our friend characters that I'm thinking of. In that campaign that you mentioned, wasn't there somebody that was, they could trip, this is what you reminded me, it was someone that could trip people, and if they were too high level for you for them to be tripped, you could make them think they were tripped? Didn't, didn't someone do that? Uh, It's been a long time. I don't think my monk had the, the ability to do that, and my monk was the only character in that campaign that could do anything of the sort. Uh... But it might no. I think what you're thinking of is our friend. It was, Alec, our, right? it was our mutual friend Alec was playing a character. I don't know the details of this character from like a what class it was or anything like that because I don't recall him ever sharing them with me. But the the character specialized in this sort of sub theme of magic. So like there are different schools of magic in D and D, and you can kind of focus your character around one or multiple of the schools and. This character in particular was focused around a particular school, and I can't, it might have been evocation or illusion. It was probably illusion. But basically, yeah, he would like attempt to do something, and if that thing failed, you would still just think it happened to you, um, which is ridiculous. That's funny. It's really so, funny. Yeah, it was, he was, it was ex- an extremely powerful character, too. That, that character did work for that campaign. Oh, yeah, I, I can imagine. Anyway, let's get into the main topic today. We've got the Adventures in the Forgotten Realms format breakdown. Oh man, we've got a lot of stuff to cover. So we're going to start by going over some of the mechanics, and it's kind of weird. We're going to cover the mechanics and then some of the other main themes in the set. And then we're going to go through each two-color pair and discuss the kind of uncommon legend and the vector that it seems to be pointing in. So this is a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a newer strategy for us. Those that have read my Vector Theory article out on Cardsphere right now, and actually uh, article number two, the sequel to that, is either out right now or it's on the way. Uh, hint, hint. So uh, we're going to discuss the direction that the deck best suited for that two-color uncommon seems to point. And then we're going to go over some of the other cards that match with that vector, things that seem to point in the similar direction and would pair very well in that deck. Um, Another way to view this would be top cards of that two-color pair. Uh, But we're framing this via vector theory because why not? It's cool. Uh, So why don't we start it off by going over Venture into the Dungeon. So what's going on with that, Zach? Yeah, so a little preface to the mechanics. There are only kind of two mechanics in this format. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The rest of them are just like weird tangential things they added to cards. So Venture into the Dungeon is the core main mechanic of the set and essentially uh what it allows you to do you'll see it on cards a card might say when this card enters the battlefield and venture into the dungeon what it means is if you haven't already started a dungeon you start one and we'll talk about what dungeons are in just a moment if you have already started one you progress one room into that dungeon and the dungeons there are three of them they are cards that exist outside of the game they're not in exile they are not part of your sideboard they just simply are and when you venture in the dungeon, you get to choose... And you, if you venture into the dungeon and you're not already in a dungeon, you may choose one of the three dungeons to begin your your journey through. All three of the starting ones are relatively simple. The first room on all three of them is... I believe we have Scry 1. Uh, you gain one life, an opponent loses one life. Uh, as I have the, them as up. The, it's, each player loses a life, but yeah. Each player. Okay. So, relatively simple starting... Um, rooms there but then they all culminate into something a bit more powerful what are your thoughts i don't don't know i mean it seems it's all over the place it's everywhere in the set Uh, every color has access to dungeons that are kind of free 
they are they're something. <laughs> it's not often we get an additional outside the game piece. Uh, sometimes we get you know broken ones like energy. Sometimes we get ones that are um, I don't know. I, I guess lesson learned is similar because you draw from something outside the game. But as we've seen, this allows for a lot of versatility, and this allows for uh, I want to say better, more interesting decision trees in games. I mean, even just this, whenever you venture, at least for the first time, you have the choice of which dungeon to go into, right? And then as you continue to go deeper, you have these branching pathways where sometimes you have uh, multiple ways to get to the same room, if that's one of the room that you really want, or uh, for example, Tomb of Annihilation, you can choose to go through the oubliette, in which case you have to discard a card, sack an artifact, creature, and a land, but then you get a 4-4 the next time you venture. So maybe you really want to get through the dungeon fast to trigger a bunch of you know, payoffs. Or maybe you want to take your time and go through the Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which has like well, like seven layers or something like that. And then the last one is you get to free cast a spell. Sick. Uh, and then there's kind of the, the mid-tier one, the Lost Mine of... Pandelver? Fandelver. Which is just kind of like a nice little value-y one, uh, where the last room is you draw a card, and in between there's some little bits here and there. So, it's cool. I think this is a really hard one to evaluate without having played it, especially because a lot of the... uh, A lot of the cards, we haven't been looking at them with respect to these dungeons yet, right? We've been looking at these cards in isolation, We've been looking at like three mana, three twos and and whatnot, and then not really thinking about how they interact with, say, room number three of the Lost Mind of Fandelver, which puts a 1-1 counter on target creature. Maybe that ends up being crucial for a deck, or maybe the life gain that the Dungeon of the Mad Mage has at at least one point, and then I think the Lost Mind has a life gain thing involved. Maybe that life gain uh, ends up being crucial for the life gain deck, which is uh, white-green in this format. I'm excited. It's really weird. It's really cool. We're going to have to wait and see how it plays out gameplay-wise because it's a very, uh, I want to say, structured ability, uh, structured mechanic, where like you get a choice of what to go through, but once you're in a dungeon, you're locked in and you have to go through. I don't know. It's hard to interact with. In fact, it's almost impossible to interact with. I think there's one piece of hate. It's like a two-mana, two-one that says each opponent can't venture more than once per turn or something like that. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to see something kind of weird like this in what would be considered a core set, though. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, because they are they kind of add a little bit more of a chess component to magic in that, like you mentioned, once you're locked into a dungeon, you're locked into that dungeon. So it's if you want to make sure you hit a specific room's effect on a certain turn, you're going to have to kind of play ahead and, and know, OK, I need to venture this many turns in a row to get to this by turn five or, you know, whatever, uh, to try to get those effects exactly when you want them. So that'll be interesting to kind of play around. And it's worth noting after you've completed a dungeon, there's nothing stopping you from going through and doing that dungeon again. Mm -hmm. You just need more cards that venture. Um, and there are some cards that care specifically about having completed a dungeon. It's sort of like a weird pseudo status effect that gets applied to you as a player once you've completed a dungeon you are known to have quote-unquote completed a dungeon and some cards care about that so that's something to look out for as well yeah the fact that there are some cards commons rares things all throughout the rarity that rely on having a dungeon be completed it makes me think that we're going to have time to complete dungeons this isn't going to be like a turn six or seven format where games tend to end quickly 
I think this is going to be a slower one because it seems to imply that maybe you could do the same dungeon multiple times. Uh, it would take some time to get through those dungeons multiple times unless you're reliably triggering venture three times a turn or something. But you need some pretty wacky stuff to, to get that to happen, I think. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm going to eat my words and regret that. Maybe people are going to be venturing like 10 times in a turn. I don't think there's anything quite like that from having looked over the spoiler. Yeah, I'm with you. It's probably going to be... I would say it won't be too terribly difficult in the decks that want to to hit twice a turn. Three times mm-hmm. a turn is probably going to be the super sweet spot where like you're really doing it if that's what your deck wants to be doing. Oh, yeah. We'll see. Uh, but more on the speed of the format in a bit. I think we're going to be seeing a slower format, but a weird caveat to that, which we'll get to. The next mechanic on our list here is an actual mechanic, and there's something to be mentioned here. There is a lot of italics text in this format almost every card has some form of italics text which is basically just a name for the ability that is being described by that name but uh, doesn't have to be referenced that way usually you can take italics text in a card to just be shortcut notation that that you know might be a way for you to real real quickly recognize what's going on in this set there are a lot of cards with italics text and they're almost all different however there is one ability called pack tactics uh, which is seen on quite a few cards and does actually give you some indication of what the ability is doing. Anything with pack tactics cares about having power six or more amongst attackers. All of the pack tactics effects are different in some way, shape, or form, but that is the trigger that they look for uh, total power six or more when attacking with creatures. And we'll we'll see some more of the cards that have pack tactics on them uh, as we go through the rest of these few other mechanics to talk about we have modal cards there are a handful of cards that care uh give you options to choose things kind of pick your path i actually have one pulled up for this dawnbringer cleric is one of the white for a one three human cleric so when it enters the battlefield choose one cure wounds which means you gain two life dispel magic which means destroy target enchantment or gentle repose exile target card from a graveyard so all cool options it's nice to have a pretty versatile little two drop like that and you'll see this on instants and sorceries and creatures and everything yeah it's all over the place the other thing we have mechanically is d20s we finally have d20s in a black bordered set which is going to be interesting assuming any of these cards make their way into constructed formats but in limited we're definitely going to see them and so these are cards that will say something like when this enters the battlefield roll a d20 and then those cards will also have a slew of effects associated which, with whatever that roll happens to be. And a lot of these max out at three options where you'll see if you roll, say, a two through nine, you have one effect. A 10 through 19 is another effect. Actually, some of them have four, right? So you, if you roll a one, it's a crit fail, as you would say in D&D, and something terrible happens. Uh, a 1 through 9 might be something mediocre, but okay. A ni- uh, 10 through 19 might be something fairly cool. And then a natural 20, which is a, a crit- critical success in D&D, is something amazing that is is just mind-blowing. Unfortunately, some of these D20 cards are also just coin flips. For some reason, they made a bunch of them. Like, 1 through 10 does one effect, and 11 through 20 does another effect, which is a little sad because I feel like that's just a cop-out. But... Uh, we we will see this a lot, and in fact, there's an entire archetype built around these, so uh, expect to see a lot of D20s rolling around. You know, I can't believe that you're saying this. Hear me out. If those cards instead just said flip a coin, you would love them. You play no, coin would. flip EDH, dude. <laughs> like... Absolutely. But here's the thing. Not only did they cop out on the D20 aspect because they could have put a crit fail, crit success, and other option on every card that uses them, I can't yeah. put these in my in my flip coin deck. 
Oh, okay, whatever. I mean, do you really want a crit fail available on your four mana three three? <laughs> I'm just saying, if it's if it's an option, if they're going for it flavor wise, they gotta go for it. I don't I don't like the cop out. All right, all right, whatever. Uh, just a note: in competitive play, apparently the official ruling is that you do actually have to use non-spin down d20s. There was a whole bunch of Twitter controversy about that, but uh, good thing every single pre-release kit is gonna come with. Uh, an actual, uh, is it just called a D20 and then random everything D20 else is called a spin a, down? Yeah, like yeah. a randomly assigned. Uh, I guess it's for the best. Some people just kind of drop the dice instead of actually rolling them, in which case it is kind of problematic. I don't know. If you're really going to play Magic the Gathering at your local game store and you're trying to game your dice, come on, dude. <laughs> Get real. <laughs> yeah. Like, you've got you've got some learning, some, some life lessons to learn. Go back to Strixhaven. <laughs> And to round out the rest of our mechanics here, we see treasures make a huge return. There's an entire archetype or arguably more than one archetype that care about treasures. It's a big component to the format. Expect to see those around a lot. Uh, and a reminder, treasures are artifacts that tap to add mana. Uh, and you tap sack them to add mana. And uh, we also see a brand new card type in classes. These are sub classes a subtype to enchantments. Uh, we have one here to go over. Uh, but they are essentially new types of enchantments to kind of bring that class feel from D&D into the game. And as, of course, that's a very big part of D&D. So the one we have here to go over, uh, and I'll preface this by saying all of them are of uncommon or higher rarity. Um, there are 12 total that I was able to find, and it looks like seven of those are rares. So do with that information what you will. But the one we're going over here is an uncommon. It's called Wizard Class. It's blue mana. Just a single blue. And all of the classes have levels, as you might expect if you're familiar with D&D. Each of the levels associated with them, when you play the when you play the class, you get the first level. Each of the f consecutive levels after that require some amount of mana to be spent at sorcery speed to gain that ability. And so for wizard class, the first level is you have no maximum hand size. So it's fine, I guess. Generally won't matter for one mana, but like, you know, cool. Level 2 costs 2 and a blue to activate, and when it does, it says when this class becomes level 2, draw 2 cards, so divination. And then level 3 is 4 and a blue to activate, and it says whenever you draw a card, put a plus 1, plus 1 counter on target creature you control. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so first of all, doesn't wizard class sound like a reject from Strixhaven? A little hey, bit. Go, go in a wizard class. Uh, I like these cards a lot. I think they all come down really cheap, and that makes them pretty versatile mana sinks. Uh, think about if you have this in your opening hand and then you had a bunch of like, you get a few two drops in your opening hand and then like a five or six drop. And first you might be like, oh, well, I've got to play a two drop on turn three. No, this thing lets you be mana efficient. This kind of takes care of your turn one, turn three and turn five. And of course, you won't always want to do it like that. Sometimes you'll have a five drop or a three drop you'd rather play. But just the fact that you have this option, you can just let this thing sit around for a bit if you have to. Uh, and it's going to eventually uh, help you out on a turn when you have nothing better to do. And all of them have pretty cool payoffs. The white one lets you gain extra life. I think it reanimates something eventually. Uh, like it, this, the, the five on this turns it into turns everything you have into a lore scale collateral. Pretty sweet. And this thing just has a divination. This is just divination, right? With like a yeah. little bit of extra one mana investment, unless you're doing something else on turn one. <laughs> like I think you're always happy to see this in your opening hand. So I think these are going to be pretty high picks. Just a note: we didn't really. And we're not going to talk about these as we go through the specific archetypes because I think pretty much everyone is going to want these. Uh, we'll have to see how they play out in context, but I don't think 
these have too big of an influence on the specific archetypes. Uh, the archetypes have, have other support cards we'd rather spend our time talking about. Yeah, it is worth noting that there is a set of rare classes that are two colors. Uh, there are five of them, and those do seem to pair pretty well with what the archetype is trying to do overall. Uh, but uh, there are only five of them, so they there isn't one for every every deck in the multicolor aspect. So we're not including them in our like multicolor discussion when we get to the uncommons here. Um, also, all of the uh, multicolored classes are rares, so something else to consider. Before we move into the full archetype archetype signposts and vector directions and everything, we did have some miscellaneous notes we wanted to talk about before we get into all of that. We've talked a few times about the importance of the power toughness dichotomy in limited formats and what the spread between power and toughness can mean for a format speed overall. So we ran some numbers before this episode and found that the average power for two drops in particular, which is a very pivotal uh, turn, is 1.72, so relatively low, relatively uh, weak as far as the average power for two drops goes. And then the average toughness for two drops is 2.03, both of those numbers including cards that make creatures for two mana. So there are a couple of equipments at two mana that will make creatures when the ETB. I included those in the math for that. So it looks like we can expect, on average, cards to have more toughness than power, at least in the two-drop slot, so something to consider. It seems like that means this is going to be a bit of a slower format, as two-drops won't be able to trade with each other as often. Also, white has the most two-drops by a significant amount, and we did a little bit of a breakdown here to go over how many two-drops are in each color. White has 14 of them. Black and blue both have 8 apiece. Red and green both have 9 apiece. There are 10 multicolored two-drops, one for each color pair, five of those being uh, the... Um, the classes the classes thank you and there are two colorless two drops as well so something else to keep in mind all right let's get into the the meat uh, so just as a brief reminder for those that haven't listened to the vector theory episode or read the article first of all go check those out we worked hard on them they're pretty cool and vector theory is pretty cool so vector theory is the idea that magic cards have a strength and a direction so it's based on physics just go read the article uh so Basically, we treat cards as though they have a specific direction that they point in. And that direction you could call the archetype, you could call it what they want to be doing. Uh, and the strength of that card is how good it is. Um, a, a one green 10-10 trample would be very, very good. Uh, it would have a very, very large vector in the direction of attacking with green creatures, if that makes sense. Uh, something like a 10-mana 1-1 white creature... Uh, that says when it ETBs, you gain a life, which, you know, they might make that someday. Uh, that has a direction, life gain, uh, and it has a, a, a strength. Uh, awful. Unplayably bad. <laughs> so you can have different directions and different strengths. We are going to talk about each of the signpost uncommons, the two-color legends. And I really like this trend of having these cool little legendary uh, uncommons uh, for each of the, the signposts. I think it's a neat trend to have. Plus, who doesn't like more legends? Legends are cool. Uh, and we're going to take a look at what the direction of that card is. Uh, it's hard to analyze the strength of that card, but we'll comment on it as best we can. And then we'll talk about other cards that seem to also point in that vector direction. So starting off with white-blue, uh, as we've deemed it the Dungeon Delver archetype, the uncommon here is Hama Pashar Ruin Seeker. Wasn't there already a Ruin Seeker? There is a black card called Ruin Raider, I think. 
Is it Jory and Ruin Diver? That was a blue red card, Diver, right? yes, yes. All right. We've done a lot of ruinous things, but Ruin Seeker is one white blue for a 2-3 human wizard. Legendary. Room abilities of dungeons you own trigger an additional time. Sweet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Double value. clear direction there. We want to be going through dungeons. Uh, three mm -hmm. mana, two, three is low on stats, which tells me that that extra room ability trigger is going to be rather significant. Notably, she doesn't venture herself, so mm. she's not going to give you one of those triggers. Uh, but but Hama Pashar does seem to be enabling the the dungeon decks. I would expect to see a lot of venture into the dungeon in blue in blue white. Yeah, without a single other card in the deck that ventures into the dungeon, this is unplayably awful. But if you have enough ways to venture, it could be pretty good. Now I noticed going through blue white, there's a lot of these kind of mildly statted creatures but they're all augmented by the venture mechanic. So I'm expecting blue-white to really get a lot of its value from this venture, uh, I guess, depending on which dungeon. I could see blue-white going into the uh, the speedy dungeon if it has one of like the rare payoffs. I think the, I forget the name of it, but it's the, it's the uh, rare three-drop. Anthems, your creatures, if you complete a dungeon. But then otherwise, it'll probably be going through the slower ones, getting all the good value stuff, and hopefully getting twice the amount with Hama Pashar. So uh, let's take a look at some cards here. We've got Shortcut Seeker. That's three and a blue. It's a 2-5 human rogue. When it deals combat damage to a player, venture into the dungeon. Simple, straightforward. Kind of a weird set of stats. A four mana 2-5, and this kind of plays into our idea that it might be a slower format. But I don't know. Clearly, these things could use some evasion, right? Yeah, and this card is certainly better off in the black-blue deck, which we'll get to next. But it does venture, and I think the white-blue decks are going to want to see it because it's a great blocker. It deals with a lot of things that are more expensive than it, and while it might not trade with them, it's certainly going to be able to block with a lot of them. So yeah. you know that that's something I expect to see. This deck probably cares a bit about those things. The next card we had here was Displacer Beast. It's two and a blue for a 3-2 Cat Beast at Uncommon. When Displacer Beast enters the battlefield, venture into the dungeon. But it also has an ability called Displacement, which is three and a blue to activate, and it says return Displacer Beast to its owner's hand. So, great way to re-enable venture. And while I would say this is arguably an expensive version of this, uh, if you have Hama out and you're getting double, double triggers off of it, uh, that's that's huge. Now, one thing I want to correct, uh, I guess not correct, but point out specifically with Hama is that you don't venture twice. It doesn't double your venture triggers. It triggers mm, yeah. the ability from the room you're in twice. So you won't get through dungeons any faster. You just get the abilities mm -hmm. more than once. Yeah, good uh, good note there. So notably, these are both repeatable uh, ventures. I, I think a creature that just says ETV venture might not always be good enough. Those are probably a little on the weaker side, but these creatures that can do it repetitively are sweet. Uh, also, if you can make infinite blue mana, you can venture infinitely with Displacer Beast. You know. Yeah. <laughs> that probably wins the game, right? I, I haven't like, actually looked. I do like making infinite blue mana. That's kind of my kind of my shtick. Yeah, I suppose you could venture through uh, the one that gains a life a bunch and then go through the one that makes both players lose a life. I don't know all the other rooms by heart yet, but that would probably work. Uh, I knew there'd be some way. Uh, so with some of these blue creatures, I think we're going to draw from blue's ability to grant evasion. Uh, there's a card just called Fly in the set that uh, it's an aura. It attaches to a creature. It gives it flying, of course. And when it deals combat damage to a player, venture. So... That is a pretty useful way of getting the shortcut seeker through. That's a nice little two-card combo there. You get to venture twice every time it hits. 
as we get into white, we can see some other ways to grant uh, evasion or not evasion so much. Sometimes evasion, sometimes just like a power buff, uh, maybe through a combat trick or through something like Arborea Pegasus. That's three and a white for a two, three Pegasus with flying. But when it enters the battlefield, target creature gets plus one, plus one and gains flying until end of turn. So that would be a nice little curve there. Shortcut Seeker into Arborea Pegasus. You get to hit uh, at guaranteed and then venture. Or I think probably the stronger card, Planar Ally, that's three white, white for a three, three angel with flying. When it attacks, venture into the dungeon. So what I like about this is that it doesn't have to actually hit the player. If your opponent has like a 1-4 flying blocker or something, uh, or a 0-4 flump or <laughs> something like that, you can just keep smacking them and venturing just on her attack trigger. Also a note with this, a lot of these white cards that involve triggering uh, venture when you attack pair really well with combat tricks. Because your opponent kind of knows that you're going to be uh, attacking with them. It's kind of telegraphed. It's almost the same as creatures that are forced to attack each turn of Fable. Those pair really well with combat tricks because your opponent's going to leave back a blocker that's perfect for it. And then you're going to have a blowout if you manage to get a trick off. So I'd feel pretty comfortable attacking with a planar ally and maybe a little, you know, like a plus three, plus three or a, a power or toughness boost, something like that. Yeah, this deck is going to be interesting. I'm curious to see exactly which cards fit into this vector more powerfully like which which cards add to the vector the most are pointing in the same direction because i yeah. think a lot of them cards perhaps like shortcut seeker may be detracting from the the actual vector direction of this deck because they kind of are slightly off and we'll see that again when we get to blue black but it's going to be interesting i i think we're going to want as many of these arborea pegasus as possible uh cards like planar ally and both of those are at common so basically anything you can get your hands on that's going to venture and reliably do so is going to be big mm -hmm. for this deck now i would say it also really depends on how big those payoffs are for the for the actual dungeons themselves because i think those are given given that hama isn't really a payoff in and of herself like her effect doesn't do anything if you can't get into the dungeons already anyway sure. i think really capitalizing on the ability, the rooms of the dungeons and being particular about which dungeon you're picking is going to matter a lot toward the success of this deck. With that, on to blue-black. Blue-black is interesting this time around. I actually am going to go out on maybe a limb. Maybe this is just common knowledge at this point. Blue-black seems to be the aggressive archetype in this format, which excites me a lot. Um, mm. The archetype we are lovingly calling Sneak. Uh, essentially, it's creatures can't be blocked is what it cares about. Seems to have a handful of creatures that do things when they deal combat damage to players as opposed to when they attack. And it looks like it's going to play out aggressively. So our, well, <laughs> saying it's going to play out aggressively is, is weird and you'll see why. Our signpost on common here is Cridle of Baldur's Gate. Criddle of Baldur's Gate? I think it's Cridle. Cridle sounds cooler. We'll go with that. Cridle of Baldur's Gate is a, it's blue and a black, so two mana for a 1-3 human elf rogue at uncommon. Of course, it's a legend. Whenever Cridle of Baldur's Gate deals combat damage to a player... That player loses one life and mills a card. Then you gain one life and scry one. A lot going on there. The drain effect might matter. We'll see how many things can capitalize on that. The mill a card likely doesn't matter. Doesn't seem like mill is like a, a strong theme in this in this format. The scry one's probably going to be pretty important. But Cridal also has another another ability here. Whenever you attack, you may pay two. If you do, target creature can't be blocked this turn. And this is kind of why I see what i see as a hint that blue black might be aggressive in this format now one three are stats we wouldn't expect to be very aggressive but because it's two mana to get a creature through 
I'm expecting to see a lot of cheap creatures in this deck that do things when they deal combat damage to a player, and you're going to want to dump this extra two mana. Like, your your curve might top at, like, three or four, and every turn you want to put two or four mana into getting creatures through. We'll see. Um, the first card we have here to kind of support the deck a little bit is Soul Knife Spy. This is two and a blue for a three, two, Elf Rogue at common. When Soul Knife Spy deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. Again, huge. You would pay two mana to draw a card. Almost, almost always, I guess, if it's also on a, on a, you know, on an attack trigger here. Seems pretty solid. Yeah, this would be a good thing to activate during a board stall, right? Attack with this thing, uh, pay two to make it unblockable. Now, it's good to give something unblockable if you're getting a good value bonus like this, like drawing a card that's huge. But having unblockable is also more relevant when your opponent is at a lower life total. It's another kind of hint that maybe you're going to want to eventually close out the game by giving like two or three things unblockable. Also notably, this doesn't have a power restriction. In some recent sets, we've seen a power restriction on things that can be given unblockable. Or we saw Wormhole Serpent, you had to pay four for this effect. So this is, uh, this is pretty cheap for this. Well, speaking of paying four for this effect, our next card is Guild Thief, which is one blue for a 1-1 one, one Orc Rogue at Uncommon that says, whenever Guild Thief deals combat damage to a player, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. So that's that's a big payoff if you can get this down on two and you can reliably get it through. But it also has an effect called Cunning Action, which is three and a blue, so four mana. Guild Thief can't be blocked this turn. So it seems great. I mean, it's going to enable itself. I don't know that you really like to put four mana into a 1-1 getting through, so you'd like to see this pumped a few times before you're putting that mana into it. But it is a sink later in the game, and those are always great in your two drops. It's hard to say this will actually get through on turn three because a lot of the two drops have big butts and are probably going to be able to eat this pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that Guild Thief is going to be great uh, great early, but it doesn't seem like it'll be great late. I mean, we'll have to see just how, how many other cards there are to get it through uh, in combat. Yeah, this is the one that seems fine late. There's some other ones that might do more if you can manage to get through with them later. Also, you know what I just realized? This is just blue-black rogues. Yes. God, I hate rogues. <laughs> well, it's also one thing that this that Guild Thief kind of catches my eye about is that when I read this card, it didn't really scream that it was all that powerful, but it's an uncommon, which usually mm. means that there's something going on there. So I'll have my eye on Guild Thief uh, as a card to kind of watch in my, my pick orders throughout the beginnings of the format. So our next card here is Horde Robber. This is one and a black for a 1-3 Tiefling Rogue at common. Whenever Horde Robber deals combat damage to a player, create a treasure token. So ramp, cool. Mm, Yeah. It's interesting because, again, all of these cards so far, I mean, I guess with the exception of Soul Knife Spy, are not dealing incredible amounts of damage when they get through, but they all have these, like, minor effects that they're doing when they do get through. Yeah, yeah. It, it, It seems a little strange to me that they would have so many abilities like this on lower CMC creatures. <laughs> Sorry, mana value creatures. Uh, I wonder how easy it's going to be to get these things through. One thing I am noticing is that this deck would be very punishing for somebody that, say, misses their turn two or turn three play. Imagine the value you'd accumulate from getting two Horde Robber triggers in. You could either slam a huge thing or maybe use the, uh, the, the payoff of treasures, which Black seems to have. Yeah, yeah, I think there are going to be a lot of ways this deck comes together and actually does something interesting, and we'll see. I mean, I'm not really convinced as to the power level of the deck yet, but 
I might be missing a part of it, um, but I, it seems super fun. I'm going to be really excited to try it out. Our last yeah. card here for the archetype is Yuan T Fangblade, which is two and a black for a 2-2 Snake Rogue at common. It has Death Touch, and it says whenever Yuan T Fangblade enters, uh, sorry, whenever it deals combat damage to a player, venture into the dungeon. So this should be another one that's going to likely see decent play. And I would have said it would be good in, like, an Esper build, but, you know, something we didn't mention at the beginning of this is that there are no dual lands in this set. Yikes. We're kind of stuck with two colored pairs then. Yeah, there's very little other fixing as well, so, yeah, expect to draft two color decks for quite a while. And there's Evolving Wilds, right? I saw the there, cool promo There is an E-Wilds. Yeah. yeah, there is an E-Wilds. Mm. Yeah, this one's versatile. Uh, trades with anything on, on defense, and if you're attacking with it, it's probably going to get through. Next up, we've got Black Red. Now, I'm not usually super excited about Black Red, but this, this is pretty sweet. Black Red Treasures Matter is our vector direction for Kalein Reclusive Painter, uh, which is Black Red for a 1-2 human elf bard. Uh, when Kalein Reclusive Painter enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. Other creatures you control enter the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter on them for each mana from a treasure spent to cast them. So how this works, if I play a... Uh, two mana 2-2, two, two, but it was cast with two treasures. That's a two mana 4-4. Four, four. That's sick. <laughs> this deck is going to be really fun. Yeah, I've never seen something this unique in, in Black Red. Like, Black Red is always just sacrifice or aggro or kill. <laughs> like, this is really cool. I like this. Um, now, as a brief aside, uh, I wonder how many more cards we need to make Painter Tribal. We've got Blood Artist. Uh, which doesn't actually pair very well with this one, <laughs> weirdly enough. Could you just do could you just do artist tribal and like every card has to have like a painting in the art or something? Oh yeah. Probably could work something out with that. A lot of vampires have, have some nice ornate true. backgrounds to them. Also, another side note. So human elf bard. Yes. Human elf is their way of saying half elf, right? Yes, for some reason they felt the need to not... I guess for synergistic reasons, they felt the need to not create a half-elf subtype for creatures. Yeah, because it is both human and elf. Okay, okay. So then... Uh, and then a halfling is like a hobbit, correct? Yes. And then a tiefling is like a demon. <laughs> yeah. Tieflings, yeah, tieflings are like half-demons, sort of. They have demon ancestry, but they are not technically in and of themselves demons. So what's the other half? All right, on to... I, I don't actually know. I'm going to have to Save read up. Town. Yeah, I've never played a tiefling, so I don't have a ton of experience with them, but I will uh, I will be reading into some lore for our Flavortown episode, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, Kalein, uh, this card's super unique. Now, just if you're hitting your land drops, this lets you play a four drop on turn three. Just black-red ramp is one way you could view this, because you're going to be making a lot of treasures, you can power out some things ahead of schedule... But there are also cards that get bonuses if you use treasures to cast them. So you're going to have to look at your opening hand and kind of see where you're going to end up spending your treasure wisely. I love this black-red kind of greedy treasure hoarding uh, aspect. Let's take a look at our first thing here. We've got Thieves' Tools. This is one of the black for an equipment. When it enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. Now you're going to see a lot of cheap cards with that line on them, I've noticed. Uh, equipped creature can't be blocked as long as its power is three or less. Equip two. All right. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, I think flavorfully, I like it. It isn't really buffing your creature, so to speak, and might actually be a nice card in the blue-black deck as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, getting basically free treasures is going to be good for this deck as well. Yeah, I'm noticing some really strong color themes here. 
more so than I am two color themes, I think. But I think the two color themes play into them very nicely. So blue seems to be uh, unblockable slash dealing combat damage. Black seems to be treasure. White seems to be, I guess, venturing or uh, attack slash venturing. Uh, and then the other colors, I suppose, we'll get to in a bit. Next up, we've got Skullport Merchant. This is two and a black for one four. This is an uncommon dwarf citizen. When Skullport Merchant enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. It has pay one of the black, sacrifice another creature or a treasure, draw a card. Yeah, so this is nice. another reason to stockpile those treasures. Mm-hmm. Now, notably, you cannot pay the treasure mana to sack the treasure itself. That would just be too good. Uh, so you got to sack something else or, uh, you know, sack the treasure itself. But yeah, this thing clearly wants to sack treasures, right? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, reading just this card without having seen the full spoiler, you would think... Oh, yeah, we want to, you know, we're probably going to have some token generators. We can just sack our creatures because this is really two mana sack a creature draw a card or three mana draw a card, right? Because mm -hmm. because sacking a treasure is essentially just paying an extra mana. Yeah, that I mean, that matters. That's that's a huge deal. Um, now, it doesn't seem like the set does have a ton of token generators. There are some, but not a ton. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're probably going to be generating. And when I say tokens, I mean creature tokens. You're going to be generating a lot of treasures, so probably going to be sacking those here. Now, there is another thing you can do with lots of treasures. You can cast off-color cards. We That's mentioned true. that there wasn't a lot of fixing, but could we potentially see some rivals of Ixalan nonsense? I mean, high-toughness creatures. This thing is basically just Sailor well, of Memes, right? <laughs> I, I saw somebody say on Twitter that Sailor Means got a color-shifted upgrade, and that is this, yeah. It's uncommon. That's sad. You can't just pick up a million of these. But dude, black, red, five color. We've got to try it, right? <laughs> like, it sounds like a bucket list item for me. Yeah. Oh, definitely. That'd be sick. Next up is Hordling Ogre. This is three and a red for a three, three. It's an ogre at common. When it attacks, roll a d20. If it's one through nine, you create a treasure. If it's 10 through 19, you create two treasures. And if it's 20, take a wild guess. Gee, I wonder if it's create three treasures. Ah, you got it. So this is just a hill giant, uh, I guess hill ogre, with some obvious token generation. Uh, it's going to make a treasure on every attack, at least one. And on average, I guess you'll get, you know, somewhere a little under 1.5, no, a little over 1.5 treasures. So sure. <laughs> uh, take I'll that. take it. Seems pretty good, especially for a deck that wants to be sacking them. Uh, this seems like a good way to make sure you've got a steady flow. Next up, you got Jaded Sellsword. This is also a red four drop. It's three and a red for a four three Dragon Warrior. So is that is that a thing? Yeah, there's a there's a race in D and D called Dragonborns, which are essentially descendants of dragons, but they are like humanoid. Um, and again, I assume for for synergistic reasons, the devs here didn't want to create Dragonborn as a as a subtype for creatures because mm -hmm. dragons are are a theme. So, Descendants of Dragons. I don't want to think about the interspecial nonsense that would have to happen here to get a humanoid dragon, but uh, I don't know. Well, if you, have you seen Shrek? <laughs> they're humanoid, not necessarily half-human. Okay, thank God. I think they still hatch from <laughs> eggs and stuff. Oh, uh, all right. That's pretty funny, then. Again, I need to read up on the lore a bit more. So, when Jaded Sellsword... Sorry, 4 mana, 4-3. When it enters the battlefield, if mana from a treasure was spent to cast it, it gains first strike and haste until end of turn. Can you imagine curving Kalane into this thing? That's sweet. Yeah, that's pretty sick. Like, that's a turn 3, 4-3 haste first strike. And I guess you could also attack him with Kalane if, if the board's free. Well, no, it's, it's, cool it's, it's not, right? It's a 4 mana, 5-4, because she gives it a counter. Oh, my God. If you're using God. that treasure. 
<laughs> that is sick. All right. That's a bucket lister too. So, yeah, I mean, it seems great. This deck sounds amazing. Front runner for me for most enjoyable deck in the format, and I'm very excited to see what other cards play into this vector direction because, wow, it sounds a lot of fun. Also, keep in mind, if you're playing this deck, because, this, again, Ben, you mentioned it, but this is something that I didn't even think of before we started recording here, this is the deck that has fixing. If you are, I mean, there are other, yeah. other decks that can generate treasures, but none so much as Black Red here. Uh, if you are... In black red, and you open a crazy off color bomb in pack three, snatch it, <laughs> just do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I hope I can relive the glory days of opening like a heavy black card in a blue white deck back in Rivals. It, it seems pretty reasonable here. You might, I could see, like, if you just attack your hoarding ogre, the the four mana three three, into like their one four every turn. There's gonna be board stalls in this format, right? If you can make like ten treasures. Doesn't seem that unreasonable. You could do some really, really dumb stuff. Yeah, I mean, Hoarding Ogre loves to see Shortcut Seeker on the other side of the battlefield, right? A 4-mana 2-5 going oh, yeah. off against a 4-mana 3-3 three, three that generates treasures. Take that all day. Next up for us is Red-Green. This is the Pack Tactics deck. This is the deck that cares about hitting that 6-plus power when attacking. Our uncommon here is Targnar, Demon Fang Knoll, which we mentioned a little bit last week, briefly. And this card is a 2-mana two 2-2, two, two. so it's red-green for a 2-2. Two two. Null, add uncommon, of course. It has pack tactics, which says whenever Targnar Demon Fang Null attacks, if you attacked with creatures total power 6 or greater this combat, attacking creatures get plus 1, plus 0 until end of turn. So hmm. half an anthem, I guess. Seems okay. You, there's some work involved. It's a 2-2 two two for 2. Decent bear, but feel like it needs a little more. And, of course, they gave us more. So, it also has an activated ability that costs two red-green. It says double Targnar's power and toughness until end of turn. This is also, just a little side note, a nice introduction as well to them using shortened names in card text. It, it, that last... It's weird because they... I feel like somebody missed the memo here because they did it for the, the activated ability, but they didn't do it for pack tactics, right? For pack tactics, mm. pack tactics, it says whenever Targnar, Demon Fang, Null attacks... But the other ability says double Targnar's power. Like, it doesn't use the, the title. Anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> this is fine. It's a 2-mana two 2-2 two, two that you can dump mana into to make it bigger. That's going to help enable pack tactics later on. I think this card seems fine, and it it's very clear what direction this deck wants to go in. Yeah. Uh, again, a deck where combat tricks pair very nicely. Uh, I suppose you could use them pre-combat to get the pack tactics, but that's not really what you want to be doing. This is, again, a telegraphed attack. So I think Targnar pairs really nicely with uh, Circle of the Moon Druid. Not Circle of the Moon Druid. It's not a Circle of Moon Druids. It's Circle of the Moon Druid. That's the three mana two four, which uh, it's a human elf druid at common. As long as it's your turn, it's a bear with base power and toughness 4-2, and then on the opponent's turn, it goes back to being a 2-4. So, obviously, Targonar pairs really well with this thing. It's a 3-mana, 4-power creature. So then on turn 4, you can immediately swing in with these. Now, what I'm concerned about is the prevalence of beefy 4-drops, because Targnar can't ever really get that pack tactics trigger off until your opponent uh, until your opponent's turn four right unless uh, uh, the turn cycle however it works out a good reasonable amount of the time this thing will have to attack into a four drop to try to get that pack tactics trigger and then this thing attacks as a three two and that might not always be good enough we just saw a four mana two five 
right? So right. that just chomps up Targonar gleefully, and then you're attacking in with, what, a 4-2? Like, aren't all these high-toughness creatures just going to blank this thing? So it would seem. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm a little curious about Circle of the Moon Druid, because a lot of folks were, like, really into this card, and it does seem great, and it does seem to be a linchpin for this pack tactics deck, but two toughness is not a lot. <laughs> yeah, it gets eaten. And then I do want to address Targonar's activated ability. You could activate it on turn four to prevent it from dying to a two five. But then you just took off your turn four to activate an ability to stop it from dying to a two five. Like, I don't know. I- I've seen enough reckless Amplomancer uh, activations on turn five and then won those games enough of the amount of the time to know that. You're not really activating that unless you're going over the top. Is this a two drop that you want on turn eight? <laughs> like might be. It might be. And uh, I would like to see if there are ways to give this thing counters because it's double its power and toughness. Like it just doubles it. It's not like it gives it a flat plus two plus two or something. Yeah. So yeah. if you have other ways to beef this up, then sure, it's gonna get big. Um, also, it doesn't have to do the thing if you have a bunch of other creatures. Like I, I can't quite tell if this is a go big deck or a go wide deck. So uh, it seems like it's more of a go big, like go tall deck, but we'll see, I guess. Um, It kind of wants both because it cares about power, but then it gives flat effects to all your attacking creatures, which means you want more of those. So it seems a little stretched. Next up, we have Hobgoblin Captain. This is one in a red for a 3-1 Goblin Barbarian at common. It has pack tactics. And so when when it it attacks, if you've attacked with with total power six or greater this combat, it gains first strike until end of turn. Now this is pretty sweet. Because it's a 2-mana 3-1. As we saw, most creatures at 2-mana two, two don't have 3 power. Or 3 toughness, rather. Or 3 power, for that matter. And giving it first strike means it's actually going to eat a lot of stuff. The problem is, mm. it's not attacking with first strike on turn 2. Or 3. Or probably 4. <laughs> like, it's when's a reasonable time to trigger pack tactics? I think that's going to be yeah. a huge, huge question to answer early on. This is uh, probably one of the scarier 2-drops in the set. And even this feels like it gets blanked by an awful lot of stuff. I think you're going to need combat tricks to, to really augment your stuff here. Or you're going to need your your creatures to line up in just the right way with your opponents. So, for example, if you do attack with Targonar, this thing becomes a 4-1 first strike, right? If you do get that pack tactics off. And a 4-1 first strike can attack through a lot more stuff. And then if you have a trick to back it up, then you're probably pretty safe. And that is a lot of action for a 2-drop. I don't know. I, I love red-green mid-range, but... I'm a little suspicious. I'm going to need to see this thing play out a few times before I feel confident in it. That being said, like these cards are sweet, and there are some formats where you could just overrun your opponent with this. I'm just a little concerned within the context of the set that people are going to be kind of setting up their, their shields and really trying to hunker down and get through the dungeons a few times before they kind of turn the aggro corner and maybe start getting all their white buffs, and uh, there's like a white three-drop that gets double strike, and then it turns on. I don't know. A little suspicious, but... Very sweet card. You know when I would actually like to see this card played? What? Imagine Hobgoblin Captain in a deck with Kalein. You have two mana Kalein, two drop Kalein, then maybe on turn four, you you cast Hobgoblin paying Hobgoblin Captain Captain paying its entire mana cost with treasures. And Ooh. now it's a five three with first strike or maybe that's ten, pretty nice. I don't know. Like you could that's a way to get it in and get, let it trigger itself almost you you cast it on turn five i guess you can never give this more than two counters with Kalein. that's a little unfortunate <laughs> i wonder if they did that on purpose like it's it's you can't make this uh you can't give this permanent first strike by itself basically 
with mm, with Gawain, yeah. but nice little design. Uh, our next card here is Tiger Tribe Hunter. This is three red red for a four four human barbarian at uncommon. It has trample. It has pack tactics. And so when you do the pack tactics thing, you may sacrifice another creature. When you do, Tiger Tribe Hunter deals damage equal to the sacrifice creature's power to target creature. Okay, so a couple things going on here. It deals damage equal to that sacrifice creature's power, which is big because this deck cares about big power. But now you're taking power off the board, so your pack tactics isn't as likely to trigger again. Eh. It seems kind of cannibalistic, which is maybe unfortunate again i feel like this archetype's just very stretched i might be missing something here but it feels like it's trying to do too much too fancily and not quite doing any of it yeah the fling effect is cool i would like this a lot more if it could go face but this means you have to invest mana into a creature one that you're hoping to contribute to pack tactics and then this kind of just forces the trade then you have to i don't know it's it's whatever but this this one is also a little bit suspicious to me it, cool design though like it's pretty sweet five and a four four the art is pretty badass too yeah i mean at four power it's gonna help get you through the pack tactics thing on its own quite handily mm-hmm. and another thing that's worth mentioning is this this fight effect or I, I guess you could argue the fling effect is happening at at attack so they don't get to line up blocks it's not like you get to do this in response to a favorable block from your opponent like you have to do this before damage even so that kind of sucks. I mean, it's a way to force, you know, it's a way to maybe kill a 5-5 five five that was otherwise going to block your 4-4 four four if you happen to have a 5-X lying around, but... But then you're sacking a 5-X. Exactly. You just want to attack with it? Yeah, I mean, if it's like a 5-2, maybe it's just going to get eaten by a two-powered creature, and then in that case, you want to fling it at something bigger, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it just seems like a lot of, like, ifs and like what ifs and you know maybe this will work and i'm not super excited about this archetype to be honest yeah the last card that we have for this is kind of cool though intrepid outlander that's one of the green for a two three orc ranger uncommon with reach and it has pack tactics uh just venture yeah this one's pretty sweet this is a premium two drop in green i'm gonna guess it isn't uncommon but it's pushed yeah i mean it's a two mana two three with reach reach isn't the most amazing of keywords but it is a pretty decent one especially in a color that doesn't generally get evasion in other ways like it doesn't tend to have flying that often you do get reach relatively often in green but yeah this seems sweet i'm excited about intrepid outlander i just don't really like this archetype yeah whatever can i sell you on green white life gain instead (laughs) so i actually think intrepid outlander is going to be much better in this deck hmm oh yeah i I can see that Uh, pairing the the venture with white yeah that probably is a little bit better well and next up the counters mm-hmm. thing with pack tactics is going to be big too. That's true. So we've got green, white life gain counters uh, in uh, our, for our next archetype here, our next vector direction. So uh, actually just as a, a brief aside, I would say that uh, red green seems to have a very cool vector direction, but questionable strength. We are up in the air about the length of that vector. However, the direction kind of cool. Uh, now this one, green, white, this one is a common direction, a direction we see often. And historically, uh, the vectors tend to not be the most strong thing in the world because life gain sometimes it gets a little underpowered. Let's be honest, this it's because time, white's involved. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, it, I don't know. White tends to struggle with card draw, as we've always known, which is nuts because they put a card at common that says draw a card in white. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about 
Trellisara Moondancer. That's green-white for a 2-2 elf cleric. Again, legendary. Whenever you gain life, put a plus one, plus one counter on Trellisara and scry one. Neat. Sure. Yeah, I mean, let's gain some life. <laughs> yeah. Now, this thing you have to reliably trigger, right? So, eh, it's the Ajani's pride mate of the set. They made it uncommon. Whatever. Getting it to scry one is pretty solid, though, because this will help you find your other action. This will help you find your other life gain matters cards. Now, I think payoffs will be a key to this deck, as just gaining a bunch of life, historically, not a very good strategy. Uh, if you just gain a bunch of life and don't do anything with it, this doesn't do anything. It's the typical trap where newer players will see two mana gain eight and be like, wow, this buys me a turn. Yeah, you spent a card, uh, but then what, <laughs> where'd the card go? You gained eight life, but your opponent kept attacking you through it. So I think you're really going to need some payoffs. Trellisara is one. Another one at common is Celestial Unicorn. That's two and a white for a 3-2. Whenever you gain life, put a 1-1 counter on it. Cool. Yeah, Works. it'll get big. I mean, we've all seen Flourishing Fox. Uh, not quite the same, and this won't trigger nearly as many times, but hey, it's a card. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think this one is also going to require repeatable life gain. What really bums me out is that there's no uh, there's no Heliod or, uh, like type uh, sorry, not, not Helia. No Daxos, I'm thinking of, from Theris sure. Beyond Death. There's no Daxos. There's no Soul Sister in the set, I don't think. Uh, Soul Sister is kind of a shorthand for a creature. When whenever another creature enters the battlefield, you gain a life. Uh, and I don't think there's one in this set, is there? Not to my knowledge, uh, but I may have skipped over it. Yeah, I don't think there is. I've noticed a lot of little life gain cards here and there. For example, you've got Priest of Ancient Lore. Wow, what a card. Two and a white for a 2-1 Dwarf Cleric at common. When ATBs, you gain one life and draw a card. What? <laughs> like, what? And then you and then lose, you right? <laughs> you, you then lose the game. Yeah, so this is a terrible body. This is a 3-mana 2-1. You never want that in your deck. But the fact that it replaces itself and gains life means that if it has a home, it's going to be in this deck. Maybe you could do something with the body, double block with it, trade it off, reanimate it to get that card back. Ah, who knows? Maybe it'll do something. Now, I like the repeatable life gain triggers a little bit more, and here we have one in Sylvan Shepherd. I think this is going to be a key to this deck if it works. Uh, this is 2 and a green for a 2-3 Vigilance. When it attacks, roll a d20. 1 through 9, you gain 1 life. 10 to 19, you gain 2 life. If you crit 20, gain 5 life. So I could see curving Trellisara into this and then setting up a nice little combo where you're putting a counter on her and scrying every turn. Your opponent would have to interact with that or else you're going to run away with the game pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm a little disappointed the crit is only gain 5. Like, I feel like they could have made that gain 10 and it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. But yeah, the, yeah. the key here is no matter what, when you're attacking, you're gaining life. And that's going to matter a lot. Because the cards that care about gaining life don't care about how much you're gaining. They care about the instance of gaining life. So mm. you just want to get those triggers as often as possible. Here's a question. How much life does a card have to gain for it to be worth a card? I think... Marshall and LSV have talked about this on LR in the past. I don't know yeah. the correct answer to that, but you're so you're you're asking how much life does a card count? Like is worth putting in your deck? Okay, let, let's say uh, one of the white card and it gains X amount of life. What does X have to be for you to put it in this this green white deck? Like eight? I, I don't know. Like, I'd probably just, go higher. Yeah, it probably is. Like this is not a card I want. Like it could <laughs> yeah, be infinite. I don't care. I, I I would honestly probably want something like 15 plus yeah it's just not a card i want in my deck <laughs> yeah uh next up is the lurking roper 
This is a weird one. This is Tuna Green for a 4-5. So 3 mana 4-5 horror at uncommon. Is this a D&D thing? Yes. Like, is this a stalact? Wait, Basically. Height? Either or. It can wait, be either it, it, or. Wait, the flavor text. The flavor text actually says, uh, you see stalactites grow down from the ceiling. Stalagmites reach... Ah, and then the guy gets grabbed. Okay, so uh, stalagmites go up, and this one seems to be going up. Yeah, interesting. That's basically what they are. They're they. This is a roper. That's the name of the monster in D anD. d They are creatures that very successfully mimic uh, stalactites or stalagmites, and uh, they have these long tentacles that reach out and grab things when they walk un- unknowingly by them in caverns. They also have crazy mouths and stuff. They actually did a great job with the art in this card. <laughs> the art looks so absurd, uh, but I guess if it's if this is realistic, look, D and D has giant floating eyeballs with other eyeballs sticking off of them. I'm not gonna get too into it, but this thing is a three mana four five. It doesn't untap during your untap step. Whenever you gain life, untap lurking roper. Man, I want to curve Sylvan Shepherd into this thing too. That turns this into a four five vigilance. Sick. Yeah, I mean, not exactly a curve per se because they're both three drops, but. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Whatever. Seems pretty good. And if you happen to be f- finding yourself against a more aggressive deck, if it's not blue-black, because that's just going to get through regardless of what blockers you have, this will block very handily and eat a lot of cards at and above its and below its mana value. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's all good. Also note, if you can gain life at instant speed, uh, you can leave this back. Or I guess, sorry, uh, leave this tapped and then gain life at instant speed to ambush an attacker. Yeah. Very true. That's definitely going to be a consideration to keep in mind if you see this on the battlefield. Next up, we have white-black. In this deck, we're, or this vector direction, we're calling Dungeon Reanimator. Our uncommon here, our, our signpost uncommon, is Barrowin of Clan Undur. It's two white-black. Yeah. Under. Yeah. It's a dwarf. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> two white-black for a 3-3 dwarf cleric at uncommon. When Barrowin of Clan Undur enters the battlefield delve into the dungeon you're not gonna stop laughing about that are you it's so dumb (laughs) it's exactly you probably designed this like you submitted the name for that card that is a very you pun to make but it has two r's so it's cool oh my gosh (laughs) sorry continue yeah fine i'm not gonna be able to i'm not even gonna say it anymore when barrowin enters the battlefield venture into the dungeon Right, and then right. on top of that, whenever Barrowin attacks, return up to one creature card with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield if you've completed a dungeon. Mm, that's so, strong. Yeah, it doesn't repeat. So it's it's a four mana three three. So obviously understated. It does venture into the dungeon to begin with when it ETBs. So you are going to get started if you haven't already. Hopefully in this deck by turn four, you've already gotten started on, on your dungeon. And it'd be nice for, for Barrowin to actually end a dungeon for you what's the fastest you can complete a dungeon like how many how many ventures is the fastest to get through them uh, i suppose Four? it's three but that's the one that makes you sack a bunch of stuff you have to sack a land a creature an artifact it's no oh. joke yeah so you're probably not not really looking to do that um interesting maybe you are i don't know maybe uh, that's maybe. a really strong payoff i guess actually... sack a creature and get it back right yeah yeah in that case for sure uh the land is problematic but Maybe there are ways mm. around that, but it's interesting. I mean, it's going to get you started at least. It'd be nice if it finishes things, but it's unlikely that it will um, unless you draw it later in the game. But at the very least, you're getting back a card of CMC three or less whenever it attacks. So yeah. that's repeatable. Uh, three or less CMC is 
nothing to scoff at. If you have a bunch of three CMC cards, like a lot of those are going to be worth something in this in this uh, format. So I'm interested to see how well this does. I mean, it kind of makes it sound like it wants to be aggressive. Like it almost makes it sound like this is the, the, your curve topper and you're just going to keep getting three drops back. Mm, yeah. But we'll see. Um, our next card here is Delver's Torch. This is one in a white for an artifact equipment at common. It says equipped creature gets plus one, plus one. Whenever equipped creature attacks, venture into the dungeon. And it equips for three mana. So a little expensive for an equip for that plus one, plus one effect. But hey, this deck wants to venture. This lets you make any creature venture whenever it attacks. So, mm-hmm. And notably, black doesn't have a ton of venture. Yeah, White is the main venture color, it seems. So this kind of augments that. Uh, the decks that are white-black that really want to get venturing might need some help. Oh, man. Can you imagine Barrow and reanimating Priest of Ancient Lore and then looping it? Oh, man. That seems kind of sick. Yeah. I, I don't know, though. It's interesting. This this Barrowin seems to be very telegraphed. If you see this, if your opponent plays this on turn four, you're just going to kill it before they get to do the cool reanimator yeah, that's stuff, true. right? That's true. It does need to be alive, and it doesn't reanimate itself if you happen to have... I guess it's a legend, so that just is a moot point anyway, but... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely fun. It's exciting. Mm. You're right, though. I mean, it's just going to eat removal spells. So that's kind of why I'm saying like you want this to be finishing your dungeon for you, because at least then you're getting one reanimation off of it. Oh, actually, not even. You, it still needs to attack. So yeah, I, mm. it's it seems a little loose, but maybe it'll be good. Our next card here is Gloomstalker. This is two and a white for a two three dwarf ranger at uncommon. Uh, sorry, at common. As long as you've completed a dungeon, it has double strike. So another card that cares a lot about completing dungeons. That sounds fine. A three mana, two, three double strike is a card I'd play, I guess. It wears equipment well. It wears combat tricks well. Yeah, <laughs> it does all these things. I don't know. This one seems a little suspicious as well. I think this might, maybe this is like the complete the dungeon archetype. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Maybe White Black really wants to have completed the dungeon because obviously these are some big payoffs and I mean getting back something uh, like the Gloomstalker with Barrowin is clearly pretty good. 3 mana 2-3 double strike is a pretty solid attacker although even that's not the best thing in the world. Maybe maybe we've had our uh, our tastes kind of spoiled for a while. Like We've been playing with some pretty high powered sets and we're now kind of, I feel like we're on the down ramp. You know, we're not playing sure. Eldraine anymore where the best 10 cards should probably be banned from every format and the next 15 are all like lynch no, pins. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, this is supposed to replace a core set, right? So it should have relatively equal power level to a core set. That's not surprising to me. I saw somebody posted a picture of the meme of the, like the, you know, the three dragons and one of them looks kind of goofy, but they're, they're, they're three heads of a, of a Hydra and one looks kind of goofy and the other two look really menacing. And it was like, mm-hmm. Throne of Eldraine, Ikoria as the two menacing ones, and then AFR power level as the goofy one. So Seems like it, yeah. Our next card here is Dungeon Crawler. This is one, just black, one black mana for a 2-1 zombie at Uncommon. ETB's tapped. Whenever you complete a dungeon, you may return it from your graveyard to your hand. So this is something that makes me think this deck is going to be capable. A, this is an Uncommon. B, yeah. it's saying whenever you complete a dungeon, not if you have, you can pay a, va- a cost to do it. This tells me that you're going to be able to complete dungeons pretty quickly or pretty regularly with this deck. That said, if you can't, I feel like this deck is just isn't it's just not doing things. I don't know. You know what? It's making me think that black white might want to go into uh, the, the bad one, the tomb of the annihilation, because this thing 
attacking with this just seems bad. It gets blanked by basically every card in the format, right? You're not really attacking yeah. it with this thing too often. But there is in the Tomb of Annihilation on the on the left path, you have this thing. I think it's uh, yeah. Let me pull it up. It's Sandfall Cell. Uh, each player loses two life unless they sacrifice an artifact creature and or a land. Sorry, artifact creature or land. So you can just loop this thing through the through the Sandfall Cell over and over. There's also Veils of Fear, the room that comes before that, uh, which is each player loses two life unless they discard a card. You can just kind of stacks your opponent out of the game by like looping this thing over and over again and then getting stuff back. I, this is the first time I've seen a specific color pair really want to go through a certain dungeon. I think black might, I think black white might want to go through the Tomb of Annihilation just to get that that sweet four four God horror. Yeah, that's gonna be the fast one too. So yeah, you know, it, so completing the, quickly. Yeah, interesting. Uh, man, sometimes you know they. they uh, what a good game we got going here. <laughs> the fact that they still managed to surprise us with a core set replacement. Yeah, and then our last card for this, uh, kind of just a highlight for this this vector archetype direction thingamajig is Fate's Reversal. This is one in a black for a sorcery at common. Return up to one target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. Venture into the dungeon. This is a good way to buy back your Barrowin after it's inevitably eaten a removal spell, and you know it's gonna help you complete dungeons as well. So seems to do everything this deck wants to do. I think we all undervalued Learn when it was stapled onto these kind of archetypal cards that we were used to seeing. Something like Guiding Voice, we undervalued for a while. So I think seeing Venture on something similar, probably going to treat it maybe a little higher than we did in the past. It seems that this might be the direction that design is going. And yeah, again, I like this kind of vector. I like reanimation. I like black-white in typical formats. There's going to be removal flowing, of course, and of course, by by now you probably realize we're not talking about removal when we go through each of these. You're just going to take good removal. So if you're able to kind of, I guess, control the board down, make sure your opponent is sacking actual valuable stuff, and you're maybe sacking your little dorky 2-1 and bringing it back, and then churning through dungeons, could be a pretty cool archetype. Next up, we've got Black Green. Now, we've got a, a, one of my longtime favorites. Black Green is historically the deck that I, I've always felt the most comfortable in. If you just tell me I'm pulling up to a random draft and I've got to play something, give me removal, give me beefers. But recently, Black Green has been a little stiffed. Uh, it's kind of fallen off the more competitive side of the, uh, the spectrum. Although I suppose Wither Bloom was fine. I just never really got super into it because it, it took Black Green and they made it about spells. Like, come on. <laughs> that, that was the one that they made good? Like, whatever. So here we've got Reanimator Death Triggers. So this is, uh, again, not super atypical vector direction for Black Green. We've got Shesra Death's Whisper, uh, in case you were wondering whether or not Black Green wanted things to die or not. This is two Black Green for a 1-3 Human Elf Warlock. So that really fails the vanilla test there. But we're not done. We've got Bewitching Whispers. When Shesra Death's Whisper enters the battlefield, target creature blocks this turn if able. And Whispers of the Grave. At the beginning of your end step, if a creature died this turn, you may pay two life. If you do, draw a card. All right. Man. That's yeah. a good payoff. Yeah. I mean, uh, forcing a creature to block, which is going to inevitably trigger that a creature died this turn clause, I would assume, right? That's kind of the, the whole joke is good also half of this this archetypes colors being also kind of part of the life gain matters sub theme is going to help mm. you pay that two life more regularly and not really worry about it so you know a, a, if you can get incidental life gain on your creatures and things nice ways to draw cards 
Notably, that Whispers of the Grave effect triggers if any creature died, so you can sack your own stuff to get it to happen too. Yeah, Shestra seems awesome. Yeah, this is a really versatile card. This pairs well with big attackers in green. There's common death toucher in both green and black. Sweet. Uh, I can't wait to try this one out. Now, uh, let's take a look at some of the other cards in this direction. We've got Purple Worm. Now, that's got to be a D&D thing, right? Because that name is just... Mm-hmm. Like, what's go- <laughs> Is that a thing? Yeah, I mean, pretty much every creature in this set that isn't like a legend or something was just named after the creature it is in D&D. So the worm is just purple? Mm-hmm. That, that's it? <laughs> okay. Yep. So five green green for an eight seven. That's pretty big. Yeah, I mean, it's a big it worm. Costs- <laughs> just judging by the art yeah it costs two less to cast if a creature died this turn so you're getting a five mana eight seven and then it has ward two that's thick yeah feel like it needs trample but for five mana you can't really complain too much we were talking about ways of breaking through these big blockers like two fives and one fours this thing does not care you, nope. you pretty much have to chump in any reasonable game you'll die to this in like two turns if you've already taken a little bit of damage that's that's a, that's a threat. Yeah, and it's going to be hard to remove uh, until like the pretty late game because of Ward. Like, if you can play this on five, uh, how do you get rid of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like most removal spells that would deal with this, unless it's unconditional, yeah, most of them would have to cost more. Besides the uh, the black four mana kill spell. Yeah, but with Ward, Whatever. it's going to cost six. So. <laughs> yeah, this is a cool one. Uh, next, we've got Bullet. Bullet. Uh, so that one, right? Bullet. Bullet. Yes. Okay. Three and a green for a 3-3 three, three beast. And it looks like a big old mole coming out of the ground. At the beginning of your end step, if a creature died this turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Straightforward. Yeah, it'll be good. Um, You know, green, black definitely wants to be attacking or blocking. I mean, a lot of these triggers are on your own end step. Um, mm-hmm. And they're things like, like the worm's cost being reduced. They want creatures to die on your turn, uh, This this archetype. So find ways to do that. There is a card that we are not going to mention here that I was really excited to about, and I had it in the list to talk about until I read it again and realized it's not good. Uh, and that oh. is, we got a creature, and I can't remember what it's called, but we got a creature in black that has an activated ability of sacrifice another creature. No mana associated. That's all That's all it is. It's a Nantuko husk effect, so it gives itself plus, yeah. plus one plus oh. You can only have activate that ability once per turn. Oh, boo. Yeah, exactly. So I was very excited, and then my hopes were dashed. Whatever. Whatever. I don't even care, because the next card is so cool. Uh, Grim Wanderer. This is one of the black for a 5-3 at Uncommon. You heard me right. It has Flash, and it has a tragic backstory. Cast this spell only if a creature died this turn. I don't think this is going to take too much effort to be really good, right? No, and I think... I think... It might almost be slightly understated, which sounds ridiculous. Really? I Here's the thing. It, it's probably not. It's probably not. But if you want to cast this on two, well, most of the time you can't. You're trying to trade a one. Like, like you needed a one drop. This isn't really a two drop, right? It's a three drop at best, and you're usually not wanting to like trade off your only creature to upgrade it slightly into this. Yeah. So this is going to be a card that's probably going to matter a lot more in the late game. Mm-hmm. Or if you can make good blocks to kill your opponent's stuff on their turn, because uh, it does have flash, of course, so this is one that actually wants creatures to die on your opponent's turn. Or later in the game, when you happen to top deck it and you have a way to sack one of your own things on your opponent's turn or something like that, you can flash it in just to play a cheap creature. But it's not a two-drop. Yeah, yeah. 
this does pair really well with other instant speed effects. Also, it's awesome with instant speed removal. If your opponent makes a big attack, kill one of their creatures, flash this in, eat their, I don't know, eat their 2-4. <laughs> that seems sick. Yeah. And last up is, this is one of the more fun, I guess it's a build around, kind of. This is Death Priest of Merkel. This is 2 black black for a 2-2. Two -two. It's a tiefling cleric. It has skeletons, vampires, and zombies you control get plus one, plus one. At the beginning of your end step, if a creature died this turn, you may pay one. If you do, create a 1-1 one, one black skeleton creature token, which of course gets buffed into a 2-2. Two -two. I love cards like this. Uh, this seems like a really sweet way to get a little bit of payoff for maybe trading something off. This thing is a repeatable token maker, and those always tend to overperform. Also, it's a lord, and it's going to affect other creatures that you might not even expect. Well, there's not too many vampire skeletons or zombies, but there's a handful at common and uncommon. Yeah, seems pretty sweet. Next up, on to green-blue, which has the vector direction that's a little unique to this color pair. Ugh. Oh, no. Ramp value. Oh, not again. Just Simic things. All right, next. No, uh, <laughs> that that's mostly true. Um, ben, it looks like they fixed Uro. We've got a, an uncommon here that is... <laughs> Named Gretchen Titchwillow, which I will forever accidentally first call Gretchen Twitchwillow, but it's not. It's Titchwillow. It is green-blue for a 0-4 halfling druid. It has the activated ability to green-blue draw a card. You may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. You know those memes where it's like, Mom, can we get Uro? Mom's <laughs> like, oh, we've got Uro at home. Uro, Uro at home. home. Yeah. <laughs> this thing. I mean, okay, you get a eureka moment. Kinda, whenever you want. Yeah, kinda, <laughs> sort of. But like, whatever. It's, it's very like, clear this is thing is gonna sit around, block, try to get to the late game, so you can dump your mana into drawing cards and playing more lands. Ah, uh, River Hoopoo, what did they do to you? At least River Hoopoo could attack and had flying. It's like how it's how it how it started, how it's going, kind of thing. Oh man, what what a meme worthy format and what a meme worthy vector. I mean, there's a weird sub theme in here of caring about different mana values. Which I noticed occurs every once in a while. I think it's only on an uncommon and a rare. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, there is a rare that cares about it. And our next card here, Sudden Insight, is an uncommon that cares about that. Sudden Insight is four blue-blue for an instant. At uncommon, draw a card for each different mana value among non-land cards in your graveyard. Yeah. Sure. This could be good in the late game. Yeah. It's sort of a build-around. Not really, because by the time you're paying six, you're likely already going to have... Maybe two or three different mana values in your in your graveyard. This might incentivize you if you have this in your hand to make weird trades. I maybe I, I don't know. It feels weird, and it's it's not seasons pass. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, you really want. I think I feel like you want exactly one copy of this. If you have two copies, you're starting to get a little heavy on the on the card draw spell mana sink aspect yeah. of this. Play Gretchen instead. Uh, I think. If you draw three from this, you're a little unhappy. Still pretty good. If you draw four, that's kind of solid. If you draw more than four cards off this, you're probably in good shape. As long as you're not getting beaten down and just overrun by pack tactics as you're trying to draw a million cards. Yeah, but this card is so bad when you're behind. It's like you spend an entire turn to draw a bunch of cards and then your opponent kills you. Like, I don't know. I It's, it's an interesting top end, but it's really only good if you have a handful of different mana values and are ahead or at least in a board stall like it'll be great when you're at parity or ahead but it seems really bad when you're behind our next card here is contact other plane 
It's three and a blue for an instant at common. It says roll a d20. On a one through nine, draw two cards. On a 10 through 19, scry two, then draw two. And on a nat 20, scry three, then draw three. Wait. Yeah, I'm in for this. This this is a card that like I'm okay to put money put money put mana into, <laughs> and sure, uh, you know, occasionally we'll get a really cool effect, and sometimes we'll draw two cards, which is also a cool effect. So, sure, works for me. Yeah, Next I th- like this one a little more just because it allows you to actually cast a spell, or maybe leave this up on your opponent's turn and leave up a counter or something. Or if you're desperate, you can cast this, and then if you got seven lands, cast a three drop too. So, yep. I like this better than the previous one. Elter Guard Ranger is our next card here. It's four and a green for a 4-1 Elf Human Ranger with Reach at common. When an Elter Guard Ranger enters the battlefield, create a 2-2 Green Wolf Creature Token. So, bunch of stats for five mana. It's got Reach. You get a wolf. Uh, sure. I mean, this is fine. It's going to make you a couple extra creatures. I think this is actually going to play nicely in the green-white deck because it kind of goes wide and the whole counters sub-theme matters there with that. But, yeah, it's fine. Notably, this is one of the best dragon killers in the set. Also true. Yeah, it does trade with the dragons pretty well. I think most of them are 4-4s, four except the, the older ones, which are yeah. a little bigger. And then last but not least, we have Hill Giant Herd Gorger. It's four green green for a 7-6 giant at common. When it ETBs, you gain three life. We've seen a slew of cards like this, like these expensive big bodies that gain you three life at the end, like that you can't really play until later. This is fine. I love the art for this card. Otherwise, you know, it's a big boy. Yeah, these things usually can come down and stabilize. If you need a top end, this will do a pretty good job. And blue-green seems to have the ability to ramp. I could see activating Gretchen on turn four and then playing this on turn five if you really had to. That would, that would really lock down the board. Another great card for this archetype that we didn't mention, but it fits in the, with the direction of this vector quite well, is Owlbear. It's five mana for a 4-4 four, four with Trample and ETB draw card. So, yeah, fantastic for this as well. Next up is uh, one that's near and dear to your heart. Blue-red, just nonsense dice rolling. Blue-red dice value, as we've deemed the direction. Now, this is one that we don't see in limited very often. This is not a direction that we see frequently. In fact, I don't know if we've ever seen this in in a normal print release like this. Have we? Not with dice. It may have been a thing with coin flipping. Yeah, this is new. So who knows how this is gonna play off, but it has payoffs for dice rolling. Doesn't have too many enablers. There's a handful of them. There's some repeatable ones, which is uh, the important part. Uh, according to Zach's calculations, there are 11 total commons or uncommons that let you roll dice in, in the blue-red colors. So let's check out uh, Faraday Devil's Chosen. This is two blue-red for a 3-3 three, three, uh, legendary tiefling warlock at uncommon. Uh, it, this has got to be a D&D spell, right? Dark One's Own Luck? Is that a real thing? It doesn't strike my memory as a spell but it may be like an ability that warlocks get because it is a tiefling warlock mm. i'm not sure about that i've never played a warlock whenever you roll one or more dice faraday devil's chosen gains flying and menace until end of term if any of those results was 10 or higher draw a card cool yeah so notably this card it says whenever you roll one or more dice and then if any of those results so a lot of cards, there are a couple cards we'll get to in a moment uh, that, that allow you to roll more than one dice whenever you would roll a die. And this will, this if any of those clause will read either of them, even though the other cards will say roll more than one and dis- ignore the lowest or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this means that if you happen to roll two dice for an effect, uh, you would and they both hit like 19s, you would only draw the one card. 
Right, but if any of them was a 19, even if you weren't going to use the other, like if you were going to ignore the lowest, uh, it, it just gives you the ability to um, work with, with those dice. Uh, but yeah, yeah. You, you only get the one trigger off of off of the uh, that 10 or higher clause. Yeah, I mean, it, Flying and Menace is great on a 3-3 three, three for 4. Like, I, I'm fine with that. I just think you really need to have reliable, repeatable ways to roll dice in this format. But 50% of the time, you're drawing a card, at least. Something a little suspicious about this is that a lot of the cards that roll dice are ETB effects, which means that you'll be yep. playing stuff on your first main phase to see whether or not this thing is going to get flying and menace and whether or not you maybe get to draw a card. I don't know. I'm a little suspicious hinging my limited success on luck. Uh, <laughs> I guess it depends how well, lucky you're feeling. I know you're going to be doing this one, right? Oh yeah, I'll definitely be giving it a go. But it, it's the the flying and menace is not a, a luck factor. Like it gets flying and menace anytime you roll a die. It's just oh, the draw oh, a card right, that's right, random. Right. So okay, okay. Yeah, I mean that, right. that's a, that's true though. I mean those are those are things, uh, all things to consider. And there you do see roll a die on like a handful of instants and sorceries. We looked at like the uh, contact other plane, which is an instant that rolls a die. So there are there are ways to do it at instant speed. Um, so if you wanted to give Farida flying and menace on your opponent's turn, there are ways to do so. Yeah, I suppose the the support cards for this ar archetype are so narrow, they really only go in this direction. A lot of them we've seen going in some other directions, but if you're into dice rolling, you're going to want to pick up a Pixie Guide, which is one of the blue for a 1-3 flying fairy at common. It's grant an advantage if you would roll one or more dice. Instead, roll that many dice plus one and ignore the lowest roll. All right, that'll pretty much guarantee that you get what you want, although this is where people are really going to start having some good stories. Uh, I don't know, rolled two ones and couldn't ignore either, something like that. Yeah, also nitpicky here, but from a flavor perspective, this card kind of misses because in D&D &D, there's this, this concept of granting advantage or disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And when you do so, you are able to... A character that has advantage on something gets to roll two d20s and ignore the lowest roll. So in that way, it did this perfectly. However, yeah, it's perfect. However, in D&D, advantage can't stack. You either have advantage, like you only get the one extra die, and th this effect will stack in, in magic here. You can, get, oh. you can get three or four or five. If you have more pixie guides, you'll be able to roll a bunch of extra dice. I suppose so. <laughs> uh, so next up is Feywild Trickster. This is two and a blue for a 2-2 two, two gnome warlock at uncommon. Whenever you roll one or more dice, create a 1-1 one, one blue fairy dragon creature token with flying. All right, that's a payoff. Little 1-1 one, one flyers to get in there anytime you roll. Yeah, again, you're only triggering this once per roll, regardless of how many dice you're rolling, so do with that information what you will, but hey, free creatures. Next up, we've got Brazen Dwarf. This is one in red for a 1-3 Dwarf Shaman at common. Whenever you roll one or more dice, Brazen Dwarf deals one damage to each opponent. So a little pinger. I'm seeing some slight pinging sub-themes. Little 1-1 one, one flyers are going to get in. Little 1 damage here, 1 damage there. Okay. This isn't yeah. super exciting. Uh, kind of some anemic beats. This is a 2-mana 1-3, and the other thing was a 3-mana 2-2. Two, two. I don't know. I guess they're worried that if someone gets really lucky, they're just going to just steamroll their opponent if they make these things too good. Well, again, like all of these are agnostic of what the roll is. They just care if you've rolled. So, I don't know. It feels bad. Like, I don't I don't like, and maybe I would imagine they playtested this and it turned out to actually just be too powerful, but I would have liked this to see whenever you roll a dice, like trigger these effects that many times for as many di dice oh. as you rolled. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you, how many there, like I said, there are 11 common slash uncommon 
cards that let you roll dice in these colors. How many of those are you going to actually want to put in your deck? I don't know yet, but I doubt it's enough to make Brazen Dwarf actually like a playable card. Mm-hmm. So you'd have it trigger on each individual roll, like say if you're if you're getting two rolls off of the Pixie Guide. Right. Yeah. Then you ping for two, or you make two one ones. Doesn't seem that push, does it? Like they probably could have done that. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's going to be busted. I mean, the Our reason I knocked it out of the park. So the reason I say that is because Pixie Guide's a common. Maybe they think like, mm. oh, it's going to be way too easy to get a bunch of dice per roll, yeah. and then you'd end up making like five one ones per per die roll, and then suddenly it's a big problem. They probably considered that direction. Like, that's got to be one of the things that they talked about I test so. extensively, right? Last here is Earth Cult Elemental. This is four red red for a 6-6 six, six elemental. It's pretty beefy for a red creature. It's common. It is Siege Monster. When it enters the battlefield, roll a d20. 1 through 9, each player sacks a permanent. 10 through 19, each opponent sacks a permanent. 20, each opponent sacrifices two permanents. Oh, you really want that crit, right? Two-headed giant, here we come. Oh, man. That is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, an edict effect in a color that's not black, which feels a little weird, but uh, mm. it's cool, I guess. You really don't want to roll a one one through nine, though. Yeah, what do you do? Sack a land each? Maybe a treasure, something like that? Well, that's the other thing. With treasures running around, uh, you might have some tokens to sack to this, like one of those 1-1 one, one tr- fairy dragons, but mm. like edict effects are generally pretty bad. I guess stapling them to a 6-6 six, six for 6 is fine, but when, like, almost half the time you're hurting yourself as well, it's... I don't know. This feels weird. It's going to probably be an okay finisher for this type of effect, and it gives you an opportunity to roll a d20, but it doesn't seem like any of the payoffs outside of the actual, like, signpost uncommon are all that worth the die roll, to be honest. This is a 6-mana six 6-6, six, six, and just making them sack something makes this harder to deal with. If they sack a land, they might not be able to cast their, like, six drop removal spell or five drop removal spell if they missed a land and if they sack a creature it makes it harder to double block yeah but if they oh, sack, I, like this seems fine yeah but how upset are you to drop your six six and be like oh here we go nat 20 and they're like sack two treasures <laughs> yeah okay that'd be bad uh this does single-handedly trigger pack tactics that's true <laughs> that's true you got me there so uh <laughs> yeah a little bit of a flavor fail all right on to our last archetype here red white and well, surprise, surprise, Red White's equipment. That is the Yay. vector direction that Red White wants to be in. They care about equipment and equipping things. A little bit of a, you hit the nail, the head, a little bit of, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> but in this set, it works because items are a big thing in D&D and mm. equipping your character is a big thing in D&D. That matters a lot. Here we have Brunor Battlehammer for two Red White. It's a 5-3 Dwarf Warrior at Uncommon course it's a legend each creature you control gets plus two plus zero for each equipment attached to it and you may pay zero rather than pay the equip cost of the first equip ability you activate each turn Mm. okay so one of the biggest complaints we tend to have with equipment is that the equip cost is too expensive yeah this solves that yeah brunor says i don't care so (laughs) take it if you have brunor you are likely to play a lot more equipment than if you don't have brunor if you have a couple of brunors you're really likely to play equipment because this turns some relatively bad equipment into pretty solid cards. And the fact that it gives all of your equipment an additional just equipped creature as plus two plus oh, it's pretty big. But it got it has the uh, the core, fire, core spirit dancer effect where it's like it stacks on itself for each equipment. It's getting an additional plus two plus oh. So if you have two mm-hmm. equipments attached, it's plus two. You know, it's a 
it's a uh, plus yeah plus four plus so i suppose it's not like the the equipments themselves are getting the effect so they don't like stack that way but uh and then the buff from the equipment itself and then, exactly so you can make yeah, big beaters for sure and you're equipping that first one for free every turn like that's that's pretty big Brunor seems perfectly designed to smash through these four mana two fives. This thing just demolishes through. Also, uh, pairs really well with Delver's Torch. I think that's probably the cleanest uh, free equip that you can get because that one has equipped for three. Right, and it gives you a relative a relevant effect in Venture into the Dungeon. It'll then be a plus three plus one instead of a plus one plus one. Like that, yeah, that sounds awesome. This is really big. Next up here we have Dwarf Old Champion. This is one and a white for a 3-1 Dwarf Warrior at common, so relatively aggressively statted. As long as Dwarf Old Champion is equipped, it gets plus O plus 2. Sure. Yeah. Two mana, 3-3. Three, three. I'll take that. Next up we have Plate Armor. This is two and a white for an artifact equipment at uncommon. Equipped creature gets plus 3, plus 3, and has Ward 1. Equip 3, but this ability costs one less to equip to activate for each other equipment you control. So you can get this to equip 0. Yeah, this one's tricky. Um, typically, you don't want to flood the board with too much equipment. Right. We saw this kind of mitigated before. Uh, sometimes that they have equipment that come in and create a creature that attaches to them. So that's what we saw in Kaldheim, right? Or sometimes, uh, I don't know, they, they do other things. that, that uh, There's, in fact, a, the, an equipment, a red one in this set that we're going to talk about in just a second that does something kind of like that. You don't want to have an opening hand of like one creature and three equipment and a few lands because if your opponent kills that creature, you're stuck with just a bunch of equipment. So I'm a I'm I'm suspect of plate armor because I think that if you do manage to get this, you might be going a little too far in the vector direction. Uh, you might be going a little little too off the deep end on getting too many equipment. This deck I don't think wants to just get as many equipment on the battlefield as it can. You have to have a good mix of creatures that can wear the equipment and the equipment itself. So I think the Dwarfhold Champion is a good one to start with because that thing can essentially be a 2-mana 3-1, and then when it gets buffed, it's going to be even better at attacking. Yeah, I mean, how does Brunor change that, right? Because one of the big reasons you don't want that many equipment on the battlefield is because when you draw a creature in the late game, typically you can't cast the creature and also equip it in the same turn. And without the creatures, Mm -hmm. the... The equipment's just dead. But in this case, plate armor is a free equip if you have enough other equipment out. And Brunor gives you free equips. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that, it's maybe something's going on there. Also, so it's good when you're behind, but... Kind of good when you're behind and great when you're ahead. you're really behind. Um, yeah, okay. Notably... 3 in Ward 1 is big. Well, and yeah, and then if you have Brunor, you know, all the other stuff, it'll actually be a 5-0, 5-3 and Ward 1. Okay, you're starting to sell me. I don't know. It... I, I, I want to play this one out myself. Also, just throwing this out there as well, each other plate armor will be seeing it's the other plate armors. It says every other equipment, but it, it's not legendary. So if you have th- three, I don't, I guess you need four plate armors for this to work, don't you? <laughs> Send me your screenshot of your four plate armor deck, okay? <laughs> will do. Even, you know I love red equipment, but that's too far for me. Yeah, but if you have four plate, I mean, they're equi- they're uncommon, so it's not likely to happen but if you have four plate armors they all equip for free like i would do that i would absolutely oh, run man. four plate armors okay and you could even put them on a menace tutu <laughs> <laughs> speaking of <laughs> our next card here is armory veteran this is one in red for a tutu orc warrior at common as long as vet- armory veteran is equipped it has menace yeah you just equip up four plate armors to your tutu <laughs> oh for free uh-huh. and then it has ward does ward stack 
it would have word one like four times. So it's kind of like storm. Yeah, it, it, it kind of stacks. So it would have, have it would have the trigger that many times. It would have plus twelve plus twelve and word four and menace. Well, it, would have, it would have word one four times, which is better, I think, uh, because if you tried to heat a debate it. Uh, you could heat it. Well, you need, I guess, three heated debates, four heated debates total. Uh, but then, <laughs> so. But heated debate can't be countered, so they just get through that's, it. Yeah. So they, oh, but then I guess you'd have the four anyway. Never mind. I thought I was building <laughs> something here, but I think it's probably better to have four individual ward ones than one individual ward four. W- would you rather fight oh, a, a horse sized chicken or a chicken, <laughs> 10 chicken sized horses? That's what I, That's what this feels like. Well, our last card here for this archetype is Goblin Morningstar. This is one in red for an artifact equipment at Uncommon. It says, Equipped creature gets plus one, plus zero, oh, and has trample. Equip for one in a red. And when it enters the battlefield, roll a d20. On a one through nine, create a one, one goblin creature token. And on a ten through twenty, create a one, one red goblin creature token, then attach Goblin Morningstar to it. Hmm. So no matter sure. what, you're getting the token. Yeah, this is one of those like flip a coin effects. It's just like they just wrote roll feet twenty because it's D and D. They should have given this a third option or something. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. It's yeah. fine. It, it could have been like twenty. Maybe the twenty would have given haste and like plus two plus zero or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is like you're you. I I guess I kind of like that this is a fifty fifty thing because it's like you pay two mana and then maybe it just auto equips. It's like fifty percent of the time it's auto equipping. I guess it's actually more than 50% of the time it's auto-equipping. Yeah, slightly. Um, <laughs> Whatever, it but, seems like a fine two-drop, and this is a nice equipment to have around. I like equipment that give trample, and the equipped cost isn't that bad. Yeah. Moving into colorless, we just wanted to mention a few cards here. We've got Dungeon Map. This is three mana for an artifact. You can tap it for colorless. Sometimes these things add any color, but colorless here makes, again, fixing in this set. It's not that good besides the, the treasures. Or you can pay three, tap it, venture into the dungeon, activate only as a sorcery. So in the late game, this is a way to repeatedly venture into the dungeon if you have nothing else to sink your mana into. Now, we noted before, classes are a good way to sink your mana in this game. Uh, in, in this format, rather. So you're not going to have infinite time. Games will end eventually. But this is a way to venture into the dungeon, and the fact that we're seeing this at Uncommon, where we tend to see these types of three mana rock effects at Common, says that this might be, you know, worth using. Maybe this is worth activating. Yeah, it taps itself, so you're only getting to do it once, and you can only do it as a sorcery, so it's kind of shields down, right? Like, you have to spend the mana for it early, but, uh, you know, maybe that's three mana tap your artifact to get a 4-4 or something. Sure. Next up, they finally brought Minecraft into into magic the gathering they made an iron golem uh this is uh let's see a few iron blocks and a pumpkin and you get a wait sorry wrong game a four mana for a five three artifact creature golem with vigilance it attacks or blocks each combat if able it's big have we ever seen a card that says attacks or blocks each combat like i know we've seen attacks a lot and i think we've seen blocks but i don't know if we've ever seen them together that's a good question i I have to scribe all that i can't think of anything off the top of my head Maybe I could, but we've been on this for like two hours at this <laughs> point, so <laughs> my memory is a little frazzled, but I, I like this thing. Uh, a four mana, five power vigilant creature is always going to do some work, and this thing can just clock your opponent pretty quickly. Yeah. All right, we're going to cruise through some top commons here because we are already, this show has already gotten quite long. Uh, first up, we've got white, uh, Priest of Ancient Lore seems to be one, that's two and a white for a 2-1 Dwarf Cleric, a common ETB, gain one, draw one. Seems fine. Uh, I hope it's good. <laughs> yeah, it seems seems fine. It should be pretty good, I think. Uh, getting to draw a card and 
it doesn't seem like there's really any ways to like buy this back, but um, in the black white deck, of course, you can you can reanimate if you get that uncommon. Next, we have you hear something on watch. This is one in a white for an instant at common. It says choose one, rouse the party. Creatures you control get plus one plus one until end of turn, or set off traps. This spell deals five damage to target attacking creature. This is your typical sort of uh, inexpensive white deal a bunch of damage to an attacker spell, but you get a little bit of extra choice there, which I like. Seems fine. And then we have Planar Ally, uh, three white-white for an angel at common. We talked about this one earlier. It has flying. It's a 3-3 whenever it attacks Venture. Mm-hmm. Now, you're probably going to see... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty high on these modal cards, like you hear something on watch. And I think a lot of them have the like the title that's D&D-esque, like you dot dot dot, something happens. Uh, the ability to choose which one you want when you need it. Uh, all these cards are super versatile, and versatility and making choices is always good for gameplay. And I'm really happy to see a lot of these kind of generic white effects or X color effects that you see on multiple cards kind of smooshed together in one, because some of them are even kind of sideboard-esque material. Uh, but this kind of means that you get that versatility just within one card. So, yeah, that, that's a good thing. Uh, we also... In blue, we've got... Oh, yeah, go ahead. There, There is a, uh, a pseudo-removal, the, the pacifism effect for this format. Mm. It turns non-artifact creatures into treasures which i think is actually going to be bad like i I think it's going to be similar to the last one we saw where like it was just a card you didn't want to play at all because treasures are actively good in this format there are decks that care about treasures and you're ramping your opponent and stuff so that's why that didn't make our top list maybe we'll be wrong about that but that that's what i'm thinking yeah it could be but I guess it might be sideboarded out against red black where they could actually really use it against like a green red deck. It's probably still fine. Now we got blue. Uh, Charmed sleep is probably up there. That's one blue blue for an enchantment. It's an aura enchanted creature. When it ETBs tap the enchanted creature and that creature doesn't untap during its untapped step. We've seen this kind of effect before. They're usually pretty good. This does require two blue pips, but uh, it locks down a thing of any size, whatever you got to take care of. It does remain on the board. So uh, be careful if they have like a sacrifice effect, might want to, you know, try to deal with that thing first so they can't get value off of sacking their creature that you charm sleep. Next up is Shortcut Seeker. We've been talking about this guy a lot. This is the 4-mana 2-5. When it attacks, or sorry, when it deals combat damage, Venture. We think this is going to see enough play uh, in enough different decks. It seems like blue-black and blue-white are both going to take this pretty highly. And I'm sure uh, blue-green probably wouldn't mind (laughs) this kind of little advantage and beefy blocker. And finally, we got Contact Other Plane. That's the 4-mana where you roll the 20 and either draw 2, scry 2, draw 2, or scry 3, draw 3. On to black, we have Grim Bounty. This is two black-black for a sorcery at common. This is your common pr- uh, premium removal for the format. Destroy target creature or planeswalker, create a treasure token. Has the added upside it's of good. killing planeswalkers and creating treasures. We've seen these four mana deal, like, destroy creature effects in every set, so this is this one for this set. Next up, we have Manticore. This is three and a black for a Manticore creature at common. It, it's a 2-1. It has flash. It has flying. And it has tail spikes. When Manticore enters the battlefield, destroy target creature and opponent controls that was dealt damage this turn. This is a gotcha card. Keep this in mind because it's going to make blocks weird when you're against black decks. Mm -hmm. Just a quick note about this one. This means that if you attack your 2-5 into their 2-5 and they block, you can get them with this. So be on the lookout if your opponent has 4 mana and they're playing black and they make a kind of weird attack. They might have Manticore and this thing at its best is just a, a flying, ravenous chupacabra. It's really good. So uh, keep an eye out. Don't get got. And our last black card here is Precipitous Drop. It's two and a black for an enchantment aura at common. Enchant creature, when it ETBs venture into the dungeon, 
Enchanted creature gets minus two, minus two. It gets five, minus five, minus five instead, as long as you've completed a dungeon. It's probably going to slot into that white black deck, but it seems to be like it'll it'll be decent removal and it's venturing. So I, I'm expecting this to be highly picked in most black decks. In red, we've got Hobgoblin Captain. That's the one in red, three one with pack tactics. It gets first strike. Seems like a really solid beater and kind of what red wants to be doing. Uh, kick in the door. This is a kind of a spike choice on, on Zach's part here. This is one red for a sorcery. Put a 1-1 counter on target creature. That creature gains haste until end of turn and can't be blocked by walls this turn. Venture into the dungeon. So at first, I, I looked at this and I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? But we talked about it a bit and I'm kind of in for it. We really undervalued something like Guiding Voice last time. This is just red Guiding Voice, right? Uh, it doesn't learn. It doesn't get you a whole card, but it does get you into the dungeon. Uh, and it does give the creature haste. So it does a pretty good uh, semblance of it. Also, maybe your opponent is playing mono walls, and <laughs> I don't know. That's not super likely. Last up, we've got Dragon's Fire. That's one in red for an instant. As an additional cost to cast the spell, you may reveal a dragon card from your hand or choose a dragon you control. It deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker. If you reveal a dragon card or chose a dragon as you cast the spell, Dragon's Fire deals damage equal to the power of that card or creature instead. So... This is just uh, a typical lightning strike effect for creatures or planeswalkers. And if you happen to have a dragon in your hand or on the field, it gets a lot better. And there's also a typical five mana uh, removal spell in red that deals five, and then you get to roll and it'll do some other random nonsense. But uh, maybe if the format ends up being slower and beefier creatures matter more, that card is going to be a little more important. But uh, these are our picks for right now. On to green, we've got Albert. This is three green green for a four four bird bear at common. It has trample nice. and when ETBs draw a card, just fantastic. I'm expecting to see this in pretty much every green deck. Spoils yep. of the hunt. This is two and a green for an instant at common. Target creature you control gets plus one plus zero until end of turn for each mana from a treasure that was spent to cast this spell. Then that creature deals combat damage. Uh, sorry, then that creature deals damage equal to its power to target creature and opponent controls. So a bite effect that makes your stuff bigger if you have some treasures lying around. You know and, what I'm kind of afraid of? What's that? I'm afraid of Black Red just sniping all of these. I was just <laughs> thinking that. I wouldn't be surprised. Black Red is kind of feeling a little bit like snow, where they can Ooh. just scoop up whatever they want. Could be kind of cool. <laughs> and our last green card here is Knoll Hunter. This is one and a green for a 2-2. Knoll at common. It has pack tactics, and so when you hit the, the pack tactics power six or greater thing, you put a 1-1 counter on it. A little two drop. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, ben, what are you most excited for this set? You know, I love my dragons. Uh, and I guess dungeons are kind of cool too. But I love big, wild hitters, things that are just going to come in with haste and smash. I think my favorite card in the set right now is probably the 6-6, the six, six, like Terror of the Stars or something cool like that. I don't even care. It, it's it's huge and it's a dragon that is sick art. I, I'm a little bit of a... What's the archetype? Is it uh, Timmy? No, that's Combo. Um, Johnny? Uh Johnny. Wait, no, that's combo. I think it's Timmy. I always forget. Uh, but we talked about a lot this of my on a whole episode before. <laughs> Look, the names sometimes get mixed up. Plus, uh, anyone that's listened this far into the episode no, probably knows to forgive us for our <laughs> slight errors now and then. Uh, but a lot of my favorite vectors are featured in this set. I like life gain stuff, uh, despite the fact that it's usually bad. I like attacking power, uh, despite the fact that it kind of looks bad. And I like death triggers. Um, I don't know, maybe black green will finally be good this time around. But this looks like it could be a really cool grindy late game format where stuff can attack, but also cool interactions will happen when stuff attacks. And uh, this looks like a, a kind of toned down set compared to stuff like Eldraine and things like that. I'm really happy with the power level. 
the fact that there's a rare uh, five mana four three flying lifelink haste that is an awesome rare and i really hope it becomes standard playable uh as opposed to i don't know naya adventures god that deck sucks i i can't stand watching that deck it, it's so annoying but uh it, this still has some twists right there's still a lot of cool stuff with venture and uh this is going to be a nice palette cleanser, I think, from, from some of the more absurd formats. There's really only two mechanics, like like you mentioned, despite all the flavor stuff. So if you eat steak every night, you'll get sick of it. Uh, this is the equivalent of dinosaur nuggets, which I'm perfectly happy to have. That's fair. That's fair. For me, I mean, come on. It's D&D and magic. What's not to love? Uh, it turns mm-hmm. out translating some of the spells and creatures and items from D&D into magic actually kind of missed, like, as much as I thought this was going to be a huge flavor win, there are some there are some misses uh, due to kind of power level concerns within the game of Magic and like mm. the limited environment being a concern and things like that. So it, they had to kind of tone certain cards down compared to their D and D counterparts, which feels bad to me. Um, I don't really like introducing something with really rich flavor and then having to like cut back on the flavor because of game mechanics. That feels bad, but that's okay. It feels the format as a whole feels a lot slower than a lot of the formats we've had in a little while, which is actually pretty exciting to me. I'm curious to see if the venturing into dungeons thing is a new way to learn lessons, if it's actually going to be relatively equivalent in power relative to the format, or if everybody's going to overvalue venturing so much that, uh, you know, anybody who's not doing the venturing thing is actually going to be the correct one early on in the format. As per usual, it's probably somewhere in the middle, but uh, I'm excited to see where that sort of levels off. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for sticking around. We uh, had a long one this week, of course, as our format breakdowns usually are, but uh, we're excited to see where the format goes. Definitely jump in the Discord to drop your trophy decks in there, as I'm sure a lot of you are going to be sniping those off early in the format here. We'll be sure to post any that we come across as well. And, of course, if you just want to talk AFR, that's the best place to go as well. If you want to support the show, check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod or buy yourself some merch over at shop.draftchaff.com. If you want to reach out to us outside of the Discord, you can find us on Twitter at Alfredian for myself, at Betafish1 for Ben, or at draftchaffpod for both of us or the podcast as in general. That'll do it for us. I'll talk to you guys next week. Enjoy Forgotten Realms. See you later, everybody. All right, quick sign off. Oh Zach and I are pre-releasing in person next week. Yes. So, uh, Zach, what card do you most want to open and then subsequently get paired against me and lose to with? <laughs> uh, right. Uh, that's a great question. I don't think I have an answer to this because I don't know the set well enough. I guess that Inferno Dragon, it sounds pretty sweet. Uh, I really want to build an amazing, just a crazy black, red, five-color deck that has a bunch yeah. of really cool rares in it that just does the thing i that's kind of what i'm hoping for bahamut i think bahamut's my the card i want to open the most actually which one's that a grandmaster of flowers is that are those the same thing all right never mind yeah, save that for the flavor <laughs> I, I think i'm probably on eliwick tumblestrom mm. just something about a bard that's just doing some absolute nonsense and venturing a bunch and finding creatures and overrunning with a whole big thing at the end that seems pretty far up my alley